Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. <laughs> it's Monday. Good morning. We Everybody's are so back. glad you're with us. Everyone's We're all reunited. Back. Yeah. Teams reunited. Uh, let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, April the 24th. A daring special operations rescue of American diplomats and their families from war-torn Sudan. But some 16,000 American citizens still remain in Sudan. Most of them are dual nationals. Well, President Biden set to name his campaign manager for his re-election effort. Julie Chavez Rodriguez, she is currently a White House senior advisor. Also this morning, the FAA investigating a possible bird strike that caused the engine of an American Airlines flight to catch fire. The plane was able to land safely in Ohio. No one was hurt, thankfully. And you better hurry up this morning because those Bed Bath & Beyond coupons are not going to be good for much longer. The company announcing that it has filed for bankruptcy and now is starting to wind down its operations. Also, Wrexham, welcome back to the English Football League. A-list owners Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney hugging after the big win that clinched the team's promotion. CNN This Morning starts right now. Okay, so technically we have six things this morning because our sixth thing is that Poppy oh ran a marathon yesterday. Half. How are you feeling? Half. Tell it's the truth. Half How marathon. Are you I can barely walk to set. What? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Look at me. Don't I look uh You look exhausted. great. Exhausted. That's my best friend Emily. We ran together. She kept me going. You know, I wanted to show myself I could do it. I can't walk. My Birkenstocks are behind the set, and I've never been so sore in my life, and I'm never doing it again, but it's done. Lots of ibuprofen. Lots of ibuprofen, a hot bath, <laughs> etc. But yeah. I didn't walk. Remember how I told you Friday I didn't yeah. think I'd finish? Yeah. I ran the whole time. Oh, good for you. Thanks to Emily. And did you have a good vacation? I did. did. I had some fun? great time in Alabama with family. It's good it's to be back, though. Good we to look see very family. rested. Vacation, what is that like? <laughs> you got it. All right, well, we do begin, though, with very serious news on Sudan. American diplomats and their families evacuated from Sudan in a daring rescue operation. U.S. officials say special forces swooped into Sudan's war-torn capital in Chinook helicopters to pick up embassy staff. The Pentagon says this rescue mission was fast and it was clean. 
and U.S. troops were on the ground for less than an hour in the capital city of Khartoum. This is a photo of Secretary of State Antony Blinken watching this tense operation unfold. The U.S. and other nations have been scrambling to get their citizens out of the country as brutal fighting rages between two rival military factions. Some U.S. citizens were able to get out of the country on French military planes. That is according to France's foreign ministry. We're told, though, still about 16,000 U.S. citizens are in Sudan at this moment. Many of them are dual nationals. So we begin this hour with our senior international correspondent, Sam Kiley. He's live in Djibouti, where this rescue operation was launched. Uh, good morning to you. Look, the, the U.S. State Department saying it was fast, it was clean. What more do we know about this mission? Well, it was, uh, it was effectively the vanguard, uh, Poppy, of a wide number of international rescue missions that are continuing apace as the security situation continues to collapse, not just in Khartoum, the Sudanese capital, but really across the country. But this was uh, all focused out of Djibouti here, which has become the hub, not only for the U.S. operation, but really for the international operations. There have been other rescues organized by the British, for example, out of Cyprus, but the Americans led the field, taking British special forces in as they went in to take out the 70-plus Americans, their uh, dependents from the embassy, and a handful of foreigners. But they flew for some uh, 800 miles at about, uh, you know, just at uh, treetop level, very low flight very, very slow in the Hercules aircraft because they needed to keep it low to avoid any ground fire, make sure that they surprise any dangerous elements on the ground. They did not take any fire going in or coming out. The special forces were on the ground for less than an hour. Uh, and but, but the important thing is that this large number of Americans remain in the country, many of them dual nationals, but they are being advised to try to liaise with the many other international organizations and principally uh, nation states that are trying to get their people out. There are now uh, a lot of focus on trying to put road convoys together from Khartoum, the 500 miles, 800 kilometers to Port Sudan. A very large convoy been organized, <coughs> excuse me, by the United Nations. The Emiratis are also trying to uh, run convoys. A substantial convoy has already gone of some 70 vehicles. But the problem is that people have to join those convoys with their own vehicles, their own fuel, food and water. And all of those essential items are in extremely short supply and dwindling rapidly as the security situation continues to disintegrate. And the fighting there isn't between two sides on different sides, effectively separated by a formal front line, if you like. It's all over the place. It's a very, very messy situation in Khartoum. And that has spread also around the country so that airfields around the country are also insecure, Poppy. We just saw, Sam, as you were reporting all these, this video of children that are stuck in the literal crossfire and being unloaded in Port Sudan as well. So a lot of these are families. Sam Kiley, thank you for being there and for that reporting. Also happening now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in Japan meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister. The Japanese Foreign Ministry says that the two exchanged views on regional affairs. The Prime Minister says he hopes that DeSantis's visit to Japan is going to lead to further strengthening of the Japan-U.S. and Japan-Florida relationship. This is being billed as essentially an international trade mission in partner with an economic development organization out of Florida. Of course, the Republican presidential hopeful has yet to formally enter the 2024 race and reminded reporters of that when he was asked how he stacks up against former President Trump. I'm not, I'm not a candidate, so we'll see if, uh, if and when that changes. 
We will see if and when that changes. The trip is also seen as a way for DeSantis to burnish his foreign policy credentials that he has been criticized as lacking. DeSantis, who spoke at the Republican convention in Utah over the weekend, is on the first leg of what is said to be a four-country overseas trip. The governor and the first lady, Casey DeSantis, as you saw there, are going to follow their time in Japan with visits to South Korea, Israel, and the United Kingdom. Back here in the U.S., President Biden and his team of advisors are finalizing plans to announce his 2024 re-election bid. Edits are now being made on a video, we are told, officially stating his intention to seek a second term ahead of a release that we are told is likely happening tomorrow. CNN's Arlette Sines is live at the White House this morning. Arlette, uh, what do we know about this announcement? There have been a lot of questions of when he was going to do it. Was it going to happen earlier this year, later this summer? Now it seems it may happen as soon as tomorrow. Yeah, Caitlin, good morning. President Biden spent the weekend at Camp David, a weekend that was intended to go through some of those final details regarding a possible 2024 campaign. But even as the president's team is working towards that announcement, which is likely to come tomorrow in a video, the president is facing serious headwinds when it comes to the public perception about whether or not he should run. And chief among those concerns are the president's 80-year-old age. Now, if you take a look at a recent poll that was out from NBC News, the majority of the American public does not believe Biden should seek a second term. And within his own Democratic Party, half of Democrats do not believe the president should run for re-election. Now, if you look at the concerns that these voters have, uh, the uh, nearly half of them uh, say that his age is a major issue. President Biden is 80 years old. He would be 86 at the end of a second term if he were to win. But his advisors uh, believe that they can overcome these concerns about his age. His allies have pointed to his records and say the voters ultimately will side with him when they look at the alternatives. But it's very clear that these questions about his age will present a very steep challenge for the president as he tries to get voters on board with the second term. Yeah, and of course, with any re-election announcement comes a campaign. Arla, what are we learning about who is going to be running President Biden's campaign? Yeah, Democratic sources have told us that the president is expected to name Julie Chavez Rodriguez as the campaign manager. She is one of the most senior aides here at the White House, the director of the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. She works with state and local official, uh, officials uh, to to try to implement some of the uh, president's agenda across the country. She is also the granddaughter of uh, famed labor leader Cesar Chavez. Uh, and also, uh, if she, she is one of the uh, few uh, Latinas who would be running a presidential campaign. But she has uh, earned the trust of President Biden and his most senior team and would be tasked with running this campaign hand in hand uh, with those senior advisors here at the White House. Yeah. And of course, Biden has Chavez's bust in the Oval Office as well. Arlette, we know that. Thank you so much, Arlette. A widely used abortion pill will remain available for now. The Supreme Court is protecting access to Mifepristone while the appeals process plays out. That could take months. It's a big win for the Biden administration, though. The Supreme Court's ruling on Friday comes weeks after a Trump-appointed judge in Texas suspended the pill's FDA approval which could effectively take it off the market after being available for more than 20 years. We turn now to CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biskupic. Joan, good morning to you. What's, what's next for this? How long could this drag out? Good morning, Don, Poppy, and Caitlin. We could see initial action right away. We've got uh, briefs are being filed on Wednesday in a lower court, a New Orleans-based Fifth Circuit, which will now hear the merits of this case. And they are scheduled to hold a hearing on May, 9, uh, May 17th. So really, we could see action from the uh, regional appellate court within a matter of months. But 
It will not get back to the U.S. Supreme Court for, I would say, several months at minimum without a resolution, probably for a full year, just because of the way the Supreme Court works and the recess they'll be taking this summer. But Don, Poppy and Caitlin, this issue is going to hang over Americans for many months just because this is the main way that women now access abortion is through medication abortion. And this is a key pill as part of that protocol. Does this ruling, Joan, suggest anything about the courts uh, more broadly? I think so, Don. I think that, you know, what we said on Friday is the Supreme Court has clearly taken a breath right now. You know, last June 24th, it completely rolled back constitutional rights for abortion, but said the matter would now be up to the states. And they've had so much pushback from that decision. Public confidence in the court has really been dropping. Uh, there's been turmoil within the court. They're way behind on their decisions for this session. And I think what you're seeing here, Don, is a modest shift that might be more in sync with America. But I want to caution that on that word modest, this is still a 6-3 conservative court. They are still moving to the right. I think we're still going to see many rulings by the end of the term that show just a, a sense of urgency on the part of conservatives to move in that direction. But for now, on reproductive rights, they've stepped back a bit. All right. And we'll be watching. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much. Appreciate that. What's really interesting about this, I think, is this is still the Roberts court. He's still the chief justice, and he's one who has wanted to move slowly on this issue. And they did not with Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade. And this is an indication of the Roberts court, as she said of such a good question, Master, moving more slowly. Yeah. yeah. And the Alito dissent was really interesting as really well, interesting. because he was kind of arguing that there were bad faith arguments being made by the Biden administration but obviously what we've seen from the other side is like, they went to this court in Texas knowing they were going to get this judge with these anti-abortion views. Yeah. yeah. And politically, it's something that is causing consternation, especially among Republicans, because oh, yeah. they're not sure exactly, you know, some are saying it's, this is where it should go to the states and others are, you know. <laughs> or some are saying both things both at the things same time. at the same time, yeah. Yeah. You've got Nancy Mason later, Caitlin. That'll yeah, we'll be really interesting. Uh, also, we're following this very closely. The former Minneapolis area police officer <clears throat> who shot and killed Dante Wright will be released from prison today. How the community and Dante's family are reacting. Plus, we have disturbing new details this morning about a DoorDash delivery that went very wrong. How a young woman was able to escape an armed kidnapping ahead. Just hours from now, friends and family will gather for the funeral of a high school football player who died during a birthday party shooting in Alabama. Phil Dowdell was one of four people killed in the April 15th shooting. 32 other people were injured in that shooting, and it happened during Phil's little sister's Sweet 16 birthday party. She says her brother saved her life that night, pushing her to the ground when the gunshot started. Their mother says that Phil was planning to attend Jacksonville State University on a football scholarship, and he told her he had big dreams of playing in the NFL one day. Over the weekend, a celebration of life for victim Corbin Holston was held, and later this week, services are set to be held for Marcia Collins and Kiki Smith. Police have arrested six suspects who are now facing murder charges. Local news outlets report all but one unnamed 15-year-old are set to appear in court tomorrow. The former police officer who shot and killed Dante Wright in suburban Minneapolis set to leave prison today, Kim Potter, said she accidentally grabbed her gun instead of her taser when she shot Wright, a black motorist, two years ago. A warning, this may be difficult to watch. Oh, 
A jury convicted Potter of manslaughter in December of 2021. She's being released after serving about 16 months of her two-year sentence. The shooting happened nearly a year after George Floyd's death and led to days of protests in Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis. CNN's Adrian Adrian Broaddus joins us now live. Adrian, good morning to you. What are you hearing from Dante Wright's family ahead of Potter's release? Don, this is a family still struggling to find peace, especially Katie Wright. That's Dante's mother. She told me following the stress of the trial and her son's death, she survived a stroke, but that stroke temporarily left her vision blurred and it also left her unable to read. She also told me during our last conversation, some say I should forgive to be at peace, but how can I? I am so angry. She, and she's referring to Kim Potter, is going to be able to watch her kids have kids and be able to touch them. I am always scared I am going to forget my son's voice. It gave us some sense of peace knowing she would not be able to hold her sons. I can't hold my son. We have to look at all the good. She will never be able to hurt anybody as a police officer ever again. And knowing that gives this Wright family some comfort. For those of you who may not remember, Dante Wright was killed during the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial. Chauvin was convicted for the killing of George Floyd. Brooklyn Center, where this all happened, is right outside of Minneapolis, about a 10-minute drive. Wright was pulled over for expired registration in one of these. It's a car freshener. It was hanging from his rear view mirror. Meanwhile, the officer, as you mentioned at the top of this hour, Don, thought she pulled her taser. Instead, she pulled her gun shooting and killing Dante Wright. Potter, who had 26 years of experience as a police officer, will be released, or she's expected to be released today, from prison. Her attorney tells me she will not return to Minnesota. Don? Adrian brought us from Chicago this morning. Thank you, Adrian. Also this morning, new polling shows that Americans don't want President Biden or former President Trump to run in 2024, at least a majority of them. So what do voters want? We're going to talk about that next. And if you have $190,000 just, you know, lying around, (laughs) you could be the next owner of this remote Scottish island. Barloco Island is 25 acres and is completely uninhabited. The nearest town is about six miles away. No buildings, no development, no traffic, just lush green grass and silence. Wow, sounds I'll see amazing. you guys later. I'm, that's where I'm <laughs> headed there. Can you imagine? That sounds I mean, like heaven. You need, you need a boat to I get to the... Okay. I need like a bar. That's, of course. Well, it's called Bar Loco. More CNN this morning to come after the break. He has not announced that he is running for president, but he is meeting with international leaders, an unusual step for a governor. That is Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who is in Japan this morning, meeting earlier with the Japanese prime minister. As you see there, his first lady of Florida, Casey DeSantis, also greeting the prime minister. The prime minister says that he hopes the visit is going to lead to further strengthening of Japan-U.S. and the Japan-Florida relationship. This comes as DeSantis is expected to visit South Korea, Israel, and the United Kingdom in a trip clearly meant to burnish his foreign policy credentials. Joining us now is CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Errol, great to have you with us this morning. You know, obviously he is here trying to rebuff the criticism that he got when he made his comments about Ukraine, people saying, you know, he doesn't deal with foreign policy day to day. 
but he's still being asked about Trump in those polls. And he was asked about it while he was there. And he kind of made this face and said, well, I'm not a candidate yet, so we'll see if that changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, what else could he say, right? Um, uh, obviously, that's changing before our very eyes. He's got real problems in Florida, and he's chosen to go overseas. Um, clearly, he's got his eyes set on the White House. Clearly, he's going to do what governors in his position have to do, which is show that they are not going to make a fool of themselves on the international stage. And so there's a lot to lose, not a whole lot to gain, because... Does he have a fully fleshed out foreign policy? Of course he doesn't. Uh, does he have uh, anything to say that's going to be meaningful and move the needle, even for businesses in his state? No, that's not really what governors do. So he's uh, in, a, in a sort of a very fraught position. And I think that sort of encapsulates it. He's like, hey, I'm not a candidate. But of course, nobody would be talking to him uh, in Tokyo or anywhere else if he weren't likely to be a candidate. Or he may not be in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, hey, I'm not a candidate. I'm a candidate. <laughs> right, that's kind of what's happening here. Let's talk about the Democrats, right? New poll, because Biden, the, excuse me, President Biden is supposedly going to announce tomorrow with a video. But there are some uh, in these new polls, is an NBC poll, shows how Americans are feeling about Biden and Trump's reelection. Uh, 70% say Biden shouldn't run again. 60% say Trump shouldn't run. So what did these polls say to you about the mood of the country you know, when it comes to these two gentlemen? What it says to me is that the mood of the country is cranky, that they'd, <laughs> they'd like something else to happen, you know, because actually, if you look at the, the, the president's approval numbers, they almost exactly in that same poll track with approval, disapproval on the economy. People are worried. You know, things are we're in, we're in a period of transition, right? Hundreds of thousands of businesses went under during the pandemic. Some of them are roaring back. We've got low unemployment in state after state after state. A lot of the regional and sectoral rejuvenation is really being felt. On the other hand, you've got this inflation, which needs to be tamed. And the way that you tame it is the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. So now you can't buy a house. And now things are a lot more expensive. And now all of a sudden your spending power is going out. And so I think people are in a, in a very sort of unsettled mood. And, you know, given that, they'd like to just have something different. What I'm reminded of is, is one of these favorite lines from, from President Biden, where he says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. <laughs> Meaning, we're, we're going to have to deal with what we've got. You know, we'd love to have, you know, caviar, but frankly, we're going to have chicken or fish. I'd much rather have chicken or fish than caviar, but that's just me. Do you, is, it the, is it the men? Is it Trump and Biden? Or is it the situation of Americans? Do you see what I'm, I'm asking? The marathon, you'd much rather have chicken or fish. <laughs> <laughs> Would they be more satisfied if it were two others, or is it just about the sort of I think it's predicament people feel in right? Right. Now? I think I think people want a change from politics, right? I mean, or they want a change from the political choices that they have, right? And so again, you know, like you're saying, gee, I'm in a mood for a steak, and it's like, well, we've got chicken or we got fish, and it's like, I don't want chicken or fish. I want something else. I wanna I wanna go in a different direction. I wanna break out of the old politics, and you know, this is. Really, what lies behind, I think, this question about the president's age, which is not just him personally, although those are very serious concerns, but I think there's this larger question about when do we get this older generation off the stage and let some of the younger people who make up, you know, a plurality of the country at this point, when do, when do our people start to sort of emerge? And there's this feeling that in terms of the economy, in the social space, and certainly in the politics, there's this older generation that just won't get out and the way. And in the Senate, too, not just... Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. So all over the hills of Capitol Hill. Speaking of Capitol Hill, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, is saying that he is confident he has the votes this week to lock... The Republican votes... Uh, to get what they've proposed when it comes to the to raising the debt limit. Do you think he actually has the votes? Uh, no, I think that's what he has to say to his caucus uh, to convince them to sort of hold together, to, to uh, convince them that this is not a political suicide mission. Um, I'm having a hard time imagining from what we've seen so far 
that what they're going to present will not be dead on arrival in the Senate, where the Democrats have control. But, you know, is he going to put forward something that will hold together his caucus? Yeah, I suppose he will. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of deep cuts. It's going to put a lot of people in a position of having to cast some really unpopular votes. A lot of his marginal members, people who won in pro-Biden districts, of which there are about, what, 14, 15, 18 of those members, they're going to be in a, in a really tight spot. Um, I think he's going to present something that will enable them to say, hey, I stayed with the team and tried to be true to Republican values as they exist in this particular yeah. season. But uh, no, I don't think it's going to get a, an actual uh, vote in the Before Senate. you go, if we can go back to the age thing real quick, <clears throat> how much does that play into what happens in 2024? Because both men are pretty old and the nominee is going to be the nominee. Is that is that is enthusiasm? Does it tamp down enthusiasm? What exactly does this age issue do? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, I think what it, it'll, among other things, it, what it might do is uh, keep a lot of people home, right? If there are younger, restive voters who just don't like what they're seeing, uh, they may they may just choose to opt out, in which case we get essentially a replay of the 2020 election. Oh, I think that's probably the most uh, the, the most likely outcome. Um, and we're, we're putting we'd be putting off for another four years. If we have the same candidates as the nominees as we had in 2020, we're putting off for four years this question of not just the White House, but also the Senate also the House of Representatives, where we have this, his, this historically old average age or high average age of the representatives and a younger generation that's looking for new answers. Errol Lewis, thank you. Thanks, Errol. Good to have Thanks, you on Errol. a Monday morning. Uh, U.S. officials say they are not planning another special operation to evacuate American citizens from Sudan next. We're going to be joined by a woman whose sister-in-law is caught in the middle of it all in Sudan with an 18-month-old baby. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Police in Tampa have arrested a suspect accused of kidnapping and sexually assaulting a female DoorDash delivery driver. 38-year-old Joseph Killings faces multiple charges, including armed kidnapping, robbery, and sexual battery in connection with the incident last Tuesday. Investigators say the woman was making a delivery in this neighborhood when a man approached her with a gun, forced her back into the vehicle, and took her to another location where he attacked her. According to police, her family tracked her phone and helped rescue the woman, but the suspect fled the scene after firing several shots at them. He was taken into custody the following day. Well, this morning, about 100 Americans have been rescued from the violence in Sudan, but thousands more are still caught in this conflict between the country's military and a rival paramilitary group. The fighting has been going on now, this recent fighting, for 10 straight days. Some phone lines are down, some Internet connectivity is unstable, and there has been looting because of the lack of police forces. Thankfully, electricity and water have been returning in some areas. The United States is not planning an operation to evacuate American citizens who may want to leave. They say it's too dangerous to do that now. Among those trapped in Sudan, an American teacher and her 18-month-old daughter, Trillian Clifford. You see them there. That's her daughter, Alma. They are caught, and they are following U.S. orders to shelter in place and to ration food and water. Her family in Massachusetts is increasingly worried, of course. They say she's made a makeshift shelter under her coffee table to hide whenever they hear gunfire and explosions. So Trillian's sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter, joins us now. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm just feeling for, for her and for your family going through this. You have little ones, so you can understand what it feels like as a mother. Have you been able to keep in touch with her and get updates on how they're doing? 
For most of the 10 days that Trillian and Alma have been sheltering in place, I have been able to communicate with her over text message. We were able to communicate over FaceTime earlier on, but internet has been out in Sudan for a while now. Unfortunately, in the last 18 hours or so, we've completely lost contact with Trillian as the cell networks are now down in Sudan as well. Wow. 18 hours you haven't been We able. are increasingly terrified. I'm so sorry. I know that being there as a teacher, teaching is her passion. She's taught really all over the world. So she's, she went there to help others as, as a passion. She absolutely did. She loves teaching. She's a preschool teacher. And she also feels like raising her daughter in an international environment is a wonderful gift for her. It's such a gift, of course, but I bet she never, never expected to be in this situation. Can you, I know they're running low on food, on water. Can you speak to how she is feeding Alma right now? Yes, so she is extremely concerned that Alma is not going to get the nutrition and hydration that she needs. They were near the end of their nursing journey, and she is now reverse weaning Alma um, so that she can ensure she has nutrition. Now, the flip side of that is to be a nursing mother, you need to be getting more calories yourself. She doesn't have more calories to eat right now. She does not know when her next food and water drop will happen or if it will happen. Wow. Wow. You know, some other countries have managed to remove their citizens as well as diplomats, so not just diplomats. Italy, for instance, said overnight that all Italians who have asked to leave Sudan have been evacuated. The same with Saudi Arabia. They've been able to evacuate some other residents of other Gulf countries as well. Is she hearing anything from the U.S. Embassy? Because our reporting now is that they are unable to bring people like Trillian out. Your reporting is accurate, but we're in a very awful holding pattern because Trillian's been told by both the U.S. Embassy and the international school that she works for that she has to shelter in place and that she should not accept any offers for private evacuation. So she is just stuck waiting right now in fear. So this is what the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, said to a reporter question about this on Friday. Let's listen and I want your thoughts out of it. Here it is. When it comes to Sudan, this is a warning, a level four warning that we provided to them many months ago, uh, basically um, telling Americans who were there uh, to leave uh, if they could and also not to travel, uh, Americans not to travel to Sudan. So we've been very clear on that. Again, it's not our standard procedure. She was essentially asked about evacuating people like Trillian. What, what, what went through your mind when you heard that? I'm frustrated because I have been hearing this message in the past two days that American citizens were warned and asked to leave. Trillian says that is not true on her end. She has been registered with the U.S. Embassy since she's been in Sudan, and she's been in contact with them the entire time. When she accepted uh, her next job in Myanmar and we did some research, Sudan was still under an orange warning by the United States, and that was only back in December or January. So orange does mean that you should not travel there for pleasure, but U.S. employees there were not asked to leave the country, at least according to Trillian. That's a, that's a really important distinction. Rebecca, please, I hope you can reach her and please come back anytime. We'd love an update on her and we're hoping for the best situation possible. Thank you so much for covering this story. Of course. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll continue to do so. Wishing the best for them. Also this morning, back here in the U.S., Bed Bath & Beyond has now filed for bankruptcy. What does it mean for you and those coupons you've been keeping in that 
kitchen drawer for so long. Bed Bath & Beyond coupons never expire. They have expiration dates on them. Yeah, to, to throw idiots off. Well, um, it's actually a pretty nice little Saturday. We're, uh, we're gonna go to Home Depot. Yeah, buy some wallpaper, maybe get some flooring. Stuff like that, maybe Bed Bath & Beyond, I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> there may not be any time left at all, sadly, for Bed Bath & Beyond. The company announced on Sunday that it is filing for bankruptcy and it is going to start to close stores. Those iconic 20% off coupons are now on the verge of going extinct. For decades, Bed Bath & Beyond was the go-to store for just about everything from weddings, baby registries, filling your college dorm shopping list, a statement from the company says, thank you to all of our loyal customers. We've made the difficult decision to begin winding down our operations. CNN's business reporter Nathaniel Myerson joins us now. Okay, so the company have been struggling for a few years, I know financially, but what is it that, that finally led them to declare bankruptcy yesterday? Right, Caitlin. So this is really the end of an era, and there are a few key mistakes that Bed Bath & Beyond made that led it to this point. First of all, it was very slow to adapt to online shopping. Even as more customers were moving online, Bed Bath & Beyond was really focused on just getting people to stores, so it missed online shopping. Of course, you face a lot of competition from Amazon, but also big box stores like Walmart, Target, TJ Maxx, Home Goods. More shoppers are going to those chains, not just online. Bed Bath & Beyond didn't keep up. And then a few years ago, it made the decision to get rid of a lot of its big name brands, which were drawing customers into stores. And it switched to private label brands, which customers weren't familiar with. The move completely backfired and Bed Bath & Beyond actually reversed course. So you look at its, um, its, its sales the last couple of decades, Climbing in the 90s into the 2000s, then they peaked in about 2014, began to tumble. The pandemic hit Bed Bath & Beyond really hard. Yeah. 2020, uh, they had to temporarily close stores, sales plunged, and they never recovered. So now Bed Bath & Beyond is basically a shell of its former self. 360 stores are left down from a peak of about 1,000. Uh, 120 Bye Bye Baby stores. Those stores are all set to close if they can't fire, find a buyer during bankruptcy. And that'll affect about 14,000 employees if all those stores close. So we could look, be looking at 14,000 people looking for new jobs. Yeah, that's a really important number there. Obviously, there are people behind all of this. The question that a lot of people have, I think, is the coupons. I say coupon, you say coupon. <laughs> We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but what happens to those? Do they, when, how long are they good for? What has the company said about that? Yes, yeah, so this is the question on all of our minds right now. So you're going to start rummaging through your, your, glove, <laughs> your glove compartments in your cars, your, your kitchen drawers, your closets, your basement, because those coupons will only be, uh, you, you can only use them through Tuesday. Once Wednesday comes, they're completely worthless. Gift cards you have to use until May, you have until May 8th to use. And then if you need to return something, you have until May 24th. Um, so we, you got to move quickly if you want anything from Bed Bath & Beyond. Yeah, and so all this is happening. I mean, we've seen a lot of bankruptcies. It's not just Bed Bath & Beyond. This is happening to other companies as well as they're saying how they're coming out of the pandemic, how people shop now, what that looks like. Right. So this uh, bankruptcies really are piling up right now in the retail sector. We think back to the retail apocalypse. We're kind of seeing it this year. Bed Bath & Beyond, not the only retail store 
to file for bankruptcy. David's Bridal has filed for bankruptcy yeah. this year. Uh, Party City, Tuesday morning. Um, Tupperware is also on bankruptcy watch. Customers are pulling back right now. They've been squeezed by inflation, and that's hurting all of these chains. Yeah, we can see that. But as you noted, 14,000 people, their jobs are on the line here. Thank you so much. We'll see. Uh, of course, this coupon-coupon debate I know we've been having over who says what. You, you, that doesn't say how you say it. Okay. <laughs> I can't, see? Probably, they can't see that at all. <laughs> Don oh, Noble Mel. C-O-U. Coupon. P-O-N. Okay, what did you ask me? You said, ask your mom. I said, how's your mom say My mom's a southerner, and my mom says, I said, do you, mom, do you say coupon, C-O-O-P-O-N, or C-U-E, coupon, that way Caitlin says it, she says, C-U-E. Yep. She's a southern lady. I knew your mom and I would be on the same side. I really don't want to disagree with Don's mom. (laughs) I know. We're good. Coupon. Tomato, tomato. Coupon. Coupon. Mom's right. Yeah, mom, okay. Mom's always right. Uh, guys, thank you for that, Nathaniel. Thanks. Uh, Russia's foreign minister is here in New York City. Sergey Lavrov, look at that. What is on that agenda? Plus a fire on the runway and a fire in the sky. What caused flames to shoot from these flights that had passengers on board? Oh, wow. so scary. <laughs> More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This is significant and pretty rare. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is right here in New York preparing to meet with the Secretary General of the United Nations. The face-to-face comes after members of the G7 expressed concerns over the weekend that Moscow may not hold up its end of the bargain in that critical Black Sea grain deal. Matthew Chance is with us. Let's start there, and we've got a lot more to cover with you. It's so nice to have you here. Usually you're in Moscow or a war zone. Well, somewhere. Somewhere. So thank you for being here. So the G7 essentially is proposing cutting off all exports to Russia, all of them. And in response over the weekend, Russia said what? Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, at the moment, um, all exports are allowed to Russia, except ones that are specifically designated as not allowed. Well, the G7 are proposing turning that around and banning everything to Russia, except for a few things like like medicines and, and things like that. The Russians are reacting strongly, saying, if you do that, then we're going to take our own measures as well. And one of the things we're going to do is stop that grain deal, which is basically the only diplomatic agreement that there's been uh, since the Ukraine war began, which allows Ukraine to export its grain to the rest of the world, sort of helping sort of hunger issues uh, across the globe. So, you know, it would be a massive escalation. Sergey Lavrov uh, is here. And what does this plan meeting, what is Lavrov looking to accomplish in his face-to-face uh, at the UN this week? Uh, well, he's chairing a bunch of meetings because it's, it's weird because Russia is now the president of the Security Council. It's alphabetically. You yeah, have to it's, go a, it's a rotating thing. And, and it, April is there is their month. Um, and so they've hosted a whole load of, uh, of conferences which basically serve to platform the issues that they want to raise. Uh, earlier this month, they, they talked about the issue of transferring Ukrainian children to Russian territory. And they got in uh, the person in Russia to speak at that conference who is the main person involved in that. Well, she's been indicted by the International Criminal Court and accused of war crimes for kind of basically stealing children from Ukraine. They had a conference about arms control. They've they've accused the US of pouring weapons into Ukraine. Obviously, that's because it's trying to defend, it's it's helping Ukraine defend itself against the Russian invasion. And now they're talking today, uh, Sergei Lavrov's going to be chairing a meeting about defending the UN Charter, which was set up to stop countries invading other countries. And so it's like... Irony there. Irony, they're they're basically trolling. I mean, that's the allegation. They're trolling uh, the rest of the world by using this UN presidency as a a platform. Yeah, but can we 
talk about just the absurdity of that, because the last time that they were in this position was in February of 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now they're they're doing this. They're having these meetings. You know, how do you see other nations respond? Because I know we've seen, you know, some eye rolls, some protests leaving certain meetings. How do other nations respond as Russia is doing this in Lavrov? Well, it's funny because I mean, the Western states obviously are as you say, rolling their eyes, you know, basically walking out of some of these meetings at key moments, sending low-level representatives and things like that. But unfortunately, there are lots of other countries around the world, like China, for instance, and India, and you know, Brazil, who are much, and many African countries as well, who are, who are much more sympathetic to the Russian point of view. But perhaps they don't want to get involved directly, or, or, or they see some value geopolitically in supporting Russia in, 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 the, in, these, um, in these acts that it's carrying out. You brought up China. What about the fact that China's ambassador to France said essentially this morning that former Soviet states don't exist? I mean, that's, that's crazy. I mean, uh, that, I, mean that go, it's, <laughs> I read that this morning as well. That's going further than even the Russians are going. The, the Chinese are very close to the Russians. They've been providing diplomatic and political support to Moscow you know, for a long time, but especially since the beginning of this war. There's an economic relationship between them. You know, China's one of the world's biggest energy consumers. Russia's one of the biggest energy producers. It stops short of providing Russia with weapons. Hasn't crossed that red line yet, um, but it may well in the future. But, you know, with this kind of political rhetoric saying, oh, look, countries like Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania and Kazakhstan and Ukraine are not really legitimate countries, it adds legitimacy to this idea that Russia can invade them at will and not violate sovereign territory. And so I think it'd be well received in Russia, but it's, it also goes a lot further than, the, than Moscow's gone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Matthew Chance, great to have you here you at the table with us this morning. You too. Yeah. All right, and CNN This Morning continues right now. U.S. diplomatic personnel and their families are now safely out of Sudan after a week of heavy fighting. The remaining Americans are being told to stay in place whilst the State Department and the Pentagon tries to work out how they might be rescued. There was a 72-hour ceasefire and a broad question about whether it could collapse. What really could make this conflict much worse is if these two sides are supported by their external allies. Will it be deja vu all over again in the 2024 presidential election? He's the right person to fix the problems that we face to undo all the damage by Biden. Sequels might be popular in the box office, but not so much at the ballot box. He has stood up for the women of America, and he has stood up for our democracy. Low poll numbers, people second-guessing him. This is where this man eats dinner. The Federal Aviation Administration is investigating two separate fires on American Airlines flights. This flight never even got off the ground. Nobody knows what's happening, so that's the first instinct if the plane's going to blow. One of America's most recognizable storefronts is closing up shop. Bed Bath & Beyond officially filed for bankruptcy following years of struggling to stay afloat. 14,000, that's how many of their non-seasonal workers are at risk of losing their jobs. Crossover three, he got it! And the Minnesota Timberwolves stave off elimination. See you in Denver, we're going back. I know. I know you've been so watching. Well, I was saying I was getting off the train here in New York right when the Knicks game was ending yesterday. All the fans are pouring out. I'm like, they're like, come with my bag, and like everyone's coming out. So they were all mood. sober, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it was like 3 p.m. at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was really early. Because it's yeah. all right there. Madison Square yeah. Garden, Penn epic. Station, and the Timberwolves. A lot to be happy about a for New York. A lot to be happy about and a lot to discuss yeah, uh, lot. this morning. So good morning, everyone. Welcome in. We're so glad that you could join us here on CNN This Morning. The United States launching a daring rescue operation to evacuate Americans from war-torn Sudan. That's where we begin today. The Pentagon says special forces swooped in to the Sudanese capital Khartoum in Chinook helicopters to pick up U.S. embassy staff and their families. We're told U.S. troops were on the ground for less than an hour and the rescue mission was fast and clean. Take a look. This is a photo of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken watching the tense operation unfold. He says all U.S. personnel in Sudan were safely evacuated. The U.S. and other nations have been scrambling to evacuate their citizens as fighting rages between two rival military factions. Around 16,000 Americans are estimated to be living in the country, many of them dual citizens. Straight to CNN's senior international correspondent, Mr. Sam Kiley, live for us in Djibouti, where the rescue operation was launched. Sam, hello to you there. In afternoon, 2 o'clock in the afternoon to you. What more are we learning about this mission? Well, it was a very dramatic uh, mission, uh, Camp Le Monnier, which is uh, the U.S. Uh, forces base here for under AFRICOM, the uh, Africa specialist uh, part of the Pentagon, uh, launched this uh, mission, which was the, in the vanguard of a multinational series of missions launched by countries from as wide from uh, Europe all the way to Japan. The Japanese standing by bringing in their forces, tried to bring their people out. But the Americans flew from here into uh, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, refilled their Chinooks, then flew very, very low indeed and relatively slowly over a huge distance to uh, the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. They were flying very low so that they could uh, not give any chance to uh, even undisciplined elements trying to shoot down uh, the aircraft. They had no uh, gunfire going in or going out. There was a sort of ceasefire in place, but uh, that really wasn't holding particularly well. But clearly they did not come under fire. Uh, and they pulled out some 70-plus uh, embassy officials and their families, plus a handful of internationals. That led the way for a British uh, evacuation involving special forces who actually travelled with the Americans uh, into uh, Khartoum. That was a road move. We've seen a lot, quite a few road moves now by the French and the British and others in to collect their people and bring them out to a military airfield on the outskirts of the Sudanese capital. Now, the focus now, Don, is what to do about the remaining population there, particularly of Americans. There's 16 to 19,000 estimated Americans, many of them dual nationals, many of them wanting to get out. Of course, Sudanese people are trying to get away from the fighting. The problem is where to run to. It's extremely messy situation in Khartoum. Uh, the government forces are using aircraft to bomb locations inside their own capital, uh, which are being held by uh, rebel forces or so-called rebel forces. So you've got this cauldron of violence with the international community now mostly out of Djibouti, Djibouti trying to run these evacuation uh, systems. And now a lot of talk being focused and potentially planning for some kind of a, an operation uh, to, to, to get people to Port Sudan. The American Americans have been told that remaining there to try to join uh, convoys. There was a 70-vehicle convoy run by the Emiratis recently that made it through to Port Sudan. The problem is that you need vehicles, you need fuel, you need uh, food and water, and none of those are in plentiful supply in this war-ravaged country, Don. Sam Kiley in Djibouti for us this morning. Thank you, Sam. And next hour, we're going to be joined by the White House's John Kirby. Stay tuned for that. 
Yeah, a lot of questions from him. Also in Washington, the Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is saying he is confident he has enough votes to pass the $1.5 trillion debt limit bill that he unveiled, passing it this week, he says. We do have a very small majority, only five seats, one of the smallest we've ever had. But I cannot imagine someone in our conference that would want to go along with Biden's reckless spending. Joining us now is CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Lauren, the big question is, does he have the votes? We heard him yesterday saying that. Are they still rounding up the people who had said they were a little skeptical of this? Yeah, I mean, there's still a little bit of work left to do, Caitlin. The whip team working over the weekend to try to shore up support for this Republican-only plan to increase the debt ceiling and make massive spending cuts. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, facing a consequential week on Capitol Hill as he tries to rally his troops around this proposal. But like he noted, he can only afford to lose four Republican members. And this is a huge gamble for the Speaker because he is trying to make the point to the White House that Republicans are united. So he has to go to the floor and show that that is the fact. They've also made the case that this is the week they are going to vote. So you can expect, Caitlin, that if there's a delay, that that also sends a signal to the White House that Republicans are not backing the Speaker's plan. So over the next couple of days, things to watch. Conservatives are asking for some small changes to be made to this legislation. Leadership has given them the message that this bill is what it is and that if they make any changes that satisfy the right flank of the conference, they could sacrifice and lose some of those votes from the moderate wing. So this is the game that leadership's playing right now. Yeah, one of the biggest tests that McCarthy has faced since he became House Speaker. Lauren, also yesterday I was watching State of the Union when Dana was hosting and Senator Amy Klobuchar said that she believes the White House should negotiate with Republicans and with McCarthy when it comes to the budget, not the debt ceiling. Uh, what's your sense of the likelihood of that, given what the White House has been saying? Yeah, a lot of Democrats trying to thread this needle where they argue that the fight over spending should happen in the appropriations process, not on the debt ceiling, but what you're hearing from conservatives, of course, is that that's not gonna fly and that a clean debt ceiling would not even pass the US Senate where you'd need a number of Republicans to join with Democrats. So that is why this vote on the House floor is so significant this week, because it really provides the test case of whether or not Republicans are gonna be able to bring the White House to the negotiating table. Caitlin? All right, Lauren Fox, a lot going on on Capitol Hill this week. We'll check back in with you, thank you. Meantime, Team Biden preparing to make it official, 2024 that is. CNN has learned the president and his advisors are finalizing plans detailing Biden's interest in a second term. Edits are being made to a campaign video announcement set to be released as soon as tomorrow that would mark four years to the day when Biden first announced he was running for president. It comes as new polling finds just 26% of Americans think Biden should run again for a second term. 70% say he shouldn't. Among Democrats, 51% say the president should not run for a second term. And that really mirrors the findings of other recent polls showing lukewarm support for Biden's reelection bid. In the NBC poll, nearly half of those who opposed a Biden run say his age is a big reason for that. All right, pay attention to this because these are frightening moments for passengers aboard two American Airlines flight in recent days, both captured on camera. Okay, it is believed that a possible bird strike sparked an engine fire on a flight over Columbus, Ohio. Look at that. That was on Sunday. And then there's this one from a separate incident. This was on Thursday when the plane never even got off the ground. That was in Charlotte, North Carolina. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now with details on both of these. Good morning to you. What are investigators saying about these incidents? 
Good morning, Don. You know, the good thing here is that nobody was hurt in either of these incidents. This latest incident, American Airlines Flight 1958 just took off from John Glenn Columbus International Airport in Ohio on its way to Phoenix, when passengers almost immediately knew that something was wrong. On climb out, the 737 apparently hit one or more birds, started to make a pulsing noise so loud that you could hear it from the ground. An aviation enthusiast on the ground whipped out their cameras and took this video. You could see the flames pulsing out of the right engine there of that 737. Once you had to listen now to the flight crew, calm, cool, collected, as they declare an emergency and start to head back to Columbus for an emergency landing. Listen. Mayday, 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 American Nineteen fifty-eight. We had a bird strike in an engine failure. American nineteen fifty-eight. Roger. Uh, can you make it left traffic back to the runway? Uh, we need straight out for now. The good news here is that a seven thirty-seven has two engines, flies just fine on one, so they were able to make it back successfully to Columbus International Airport. The bad news here is that bird strikes are not going away anytime soon. 1,700 reported so far this year, 17,000 reported last year. One of the things that may be happening, it's easier for pilots to report bird strikes. Gone are the days of the mountains of paperwork. They can do it online now. The other good thing here, Don, is that these bird strikes very rarely end in injuries. Maybe 0.1% over the last 30 years have caused an injury to a passenger or a pilot, but this is really just bad news for the bird, typically and also good news for the flight crew who was able to do this very successfully and get this plane back on the ground with no problems. So these, these increasing incidents, whatever the cause, right, if it's easier for them to, to note or what have you, this is all happening as the head of the, the acting head, I should say, of the FAA, Billy Nolan, is stepping down this summer after one year. What comes next for the FAA? You know, the... There's a bit of a leadership vacuum at the FAA now, and the Biden administration really needs to put forth a nominee who will take the helm of the FAA as it's going through all these problems. One of the biggest problems the FAA is facing is they're now admitting a shortage of air traffic controllers, which could cause flights to be delayed even more at New York's three main airports, Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK, and the FAA is asking airlines to scale back service to those airports. We'll find out at the end of the month just how severely air Airlines will scale back service to those airports, but really something the FAA needs to tackle here, and they need a long-term head to figure out that problem as well. Pete Montine in Washington, D.C. for us this morning. Thank you, Pete. All right, also this morning, children and parents at Disneyland in California watched as a dragon went up in flames during the park's phantasmic show Saturday night. Parkgoers capturing that dramatic scene on video. The park stopped the show's music as fireballs were falling from the dragon's head, as you see here. Eventually, the entire thing actually went up in flames. Representatives for Disney say that they were able to safely evacuate all the workers, all the visitors near the ride. Fire crews came to put out the flames. They're still looking, though, into what caused this. The Maleficent, but it's a 45-foot dragon, certainly put on a show on Saturday. Not the one people were expecting, though. I was going to say, they got a show, <laughs> didn't they? Not what they thought they were going <laughs> to Yikes. Yeah, I'm glad uh, everybody's okay. I know. Indeed. Crazy. All right, Hunter Biden striking back this morning. The new and aggressive move his lawyers are making next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Hunter Biden's lawyers are going on offense, striking back against his accusers. Brand new this morning, CNN has learned his legal team is demanding an investigation into why a Trump aide had his banking records. And they also want an ethics probe of Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let's bring in our Paula Ricci as all of this reporting. Paula, good morning. This is a new I mean, they've been taking this aggressive tack now for a few months, but this is significant. That's exactly right, Poppy. Over the past few months, as the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden appeared to stall and as Republicans took over the House and made it clear that Hunter Biden was going to be a focus, Hunter Biden's legal team decided to take a much more aggressive and, in some examples, litigious approach. And this morning, we have multiple letters that they're firing off. The first one, as you noted, is to the Treasury Inspector General seeking an investigation of former Trump aide Garrett Ziegler. Now, Hunter Biden's legal team alleges that Ziegler has obtained and posted suspicious activity reports known as SARS. They point to the fact that on a podcast late last year, Ziegler claimed to have an insider, J.P. Morgan, who is helping him obtain this. Biden's legal team describes this as a conspiracy to illegally post these records. Now, we have reached out to an attorney for Ziegler. We're told by a source familiar with Hunter Biden's legal strategy that he has been a top focus for them in this more aggressive approach. They've also fired, filed a lawsuit against Ziegler, alleging that he was harassing members of Biden's team. Now, in the other letter, they're reaching out uh, for an ethics inquiry into Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene for public comments and allegations she has made against Hunter Biden. Now, we have also reached out to the representative's team, but we have not heard back at this time. Hunter Biden, Paula, is, uh, is set to meet with the DOJ later this week. What does this mean for the investigation? That's right, Don. We broke this news on Friday that there is a meeting expected this week between Hunter Biden's legal team and a group of attorneys at a DOJ. Now, this is described to us as a routine meeting. We are told that this was arranged at the request of Hunter Biden's legal team, that they reached out in recent weeks seeking an update, and they received a routine, what is described as a routine invitation to come into DOJ and discuss the case. Now, also in attendance, in addition to at least one top career Justice Department official, will be the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who's been overseeing the investigation into Hunter Biden. Now, it begs a lot of questions. What exactly is going on with this investigation? It's been going on since 2018. But our latest reporting is that they have narrowed the charges down to a potentially some tax crimes and possibly one count of a false statement related to the purchase of a weapon. But that's been the status of the case since last summer. And there have been no public developments. At this point, of course, he has not been charged. It's unclear if he ever will be charged. But we're told by a source that this meeting this week is unlikely to reveal the final disposition of this case. All right. So then you will keep reporting. Paula Reed, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah, a lot of questions about that investigation. Also today, a January 6th protester is now at the center of a far-right conspiracy. Ray Epps, who took part in the January 6th Capitol riots, has been the target of right-wing conspiracies that he was actually an FBI informant. He is now coming forward telling his story on 60 Minutes. What happened next at Peace Circle, where protesters first overran police, is seen as a smoking gun. Epps pulled this agitated rioter aside and said something. Conspiracists say he was giving marching orders, because seconds later, this happened. The first Capitol Police officer goes down. As closely as you can remember, what exactly did you say to him? 
dude, we're not here for that. The police aren't the enemy, something like that. Did anyone from the federal government direct you to be here at the peace circle at this time? No. No one from the FBI? No. Your old comrades with the Oath Keepers? No. In a statement to 60 Minutes, the FBI told them, quote, Ray Epps has never been an FBI source or an FBI employee. Police say at least nine teenagers are recovering from injuries this morning after shots were fired at an after-prom party in eastern Texas. Authorities responding to a disturbance at a Jasper home early Sunday where they found multiple people injured between the ages of 15 and 19. No one suffered life-threatening injuries. The Jasper County Sheriff's Office says that they are following leads on several persons of interest. Panicked moments at a basketball tournament in Texas after someone reported an active shooter. Watch this. Parents, players, coaches seen fleeing for their lives at the tournament. It was in Mansfield, a community southwest of Dallas, on Sunday afternoon. Someone yelled, shots fired, leading everyone to run for cover. And police say they're investigating a fight where someone reportedly had a gun but did not actually fire shots. Officials haven't said whether they have anyone in custody. No one was injured. All tournaments, though, have been canceled. Just awful to see that. And you can see the panic. I mean, people feel understandably given what we've been reporting on. At a basketball tournament on a Sunday afternoon. Mortgage fees about to change for potential home buyers. And the rule could be based on your credit score. Also this morning, Ed Sheeran is about to head to trial again over claims of copyright infringement. We're going to play you the song in question. We'll see what you think of what is going to be discussed in court. Let's love, baby. Let's get it on. New this morning, CEO Jeff Schell is out at NBC Universal, leaving the company after an outside investigation into a complaint of inappropriate conduct. In a statement, Schell said, quote, I had an inappropriate relationship with a woman in the company, which I deeply regret. He didn't specify who the woman is or any details about that investigation. Shell, of course, had been named the CEO in January 2020 after he led content creation, programming, and distribution for NBC Universal's film and entertainment division. Comcast, which is NBC Universal's parent company, is set to report its first quarter earnings on Thursday. CNN has reached out to Comcast and NBC Universal for comment. I should note we have not gotten a comment back, but we'll let you know if we do. If you are looking to buy a home, mortgage fees could be changing as soon as next month. Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans is with us now. Good morning. 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 Why? So, look, this is all an effort to narrow that homeownership gap in America. We have a very difficult gap between low income um, and, and higher income families. Uh, there's a racial homeownership gap and low income and first time home buyers. Th- these federal rules, these rules are meant to make it a little bit easier for them to buy a home. So these mortgage fees are changing May 1st. This is called the loan level price adjustment matrix. It's my name. It's mind numbing. <laughs> uh, basically, there's upfront fees for loans backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They will change. Mm-hmm. They relate to credit scores and down payment amounts. And in some cases, and this is getting a lot of attention online, um, a higher credit score borrowers may pay a little bit more in these upfront fees. Lower credit score borrowers will pay a little bit less. Now, overall, it does not make sense 
to try to have a lower credit score. I, I mean, that's not, you, you're going to pay more if you have a lower credit score. This is trying to narrow that gap between um, the higher credit score borrower, borrowers and lower credit score borrowers. There's a lot of criticism of that because sure. people say they feel like they're being punished if they have a higher credit score for this. And that's what you're hearing a lot of people talk about online. You're, you're even hearing people say, look, I'm not going to pay my bills so that I'll get a lower credit score and so then I will I, I'll, idea, pay, right? I'll pay a lower. Ooh. That's just really bad. Overall, it, it does not mean it's better to have a lower credit score. Um, you can argue if it's fair or if it will work, which is what a lot of people in the real estate sector are talking about. Is this a good idea? That's separate. If you have a higher credit score, I want to say this. If you have a higher credit score, you pay less. Overall, you pay less to borrow than somebody with a lower credit score. That's just how the whole system works. Can we talk a little bit more about real estate? I don't sure. know if this is part of it. Because, so sure. the conventional wisdom is the interest rates are high. Everybody's waiting for the rates to go down, yeah. down, down, down. Yeah. But People in the real estate world, bless you. People in the real estate world will say, "Do you have tissue?" Um, will say, um, "No, I just happen to have some here." They will say, "If you, um, you should just buy now, even with a high interest rate, and then refinance because this is the best time." right now to buy, the prices are like really peak, really great for buying. So it depends on who you are and what you need the home for, right? Um, I keep hearing that the sweet spot, that's mortgage rates last week, they ticked up a little bit um, on some strong economic news. Uh, 5.5% seems to be the sweet spot when you ask people, that's what they're really kind of waiting for. They want rates to go back down to 5.5% or so. I mean, the best thing for for somebody who's trying to buy a home, if if it's in the zip code you want, if it's where you want to be and the the time is right, that's that's why you buy a home. I think we're getting used to these 6% mortgage rates. Uh, a year ago, this was so shocking that these rates were up, and so that was keeping people out of the market. Now people are getting a little more used to it. They've figured out what they can afford to buy. You can afford to buy a little bit less this year than last year because of those higher rates. Uh, but I think rates have stabled out here, and I think that's making people feel a little bit more comfortable about buying. All right, cool. Thank By the way, everybody sneezed. I'm sneezing this morning. Caitlin's sniffling. I'm usually it's good at holding it in, baby. It's the spring. There's so much pollen in the air, too, I right? I mean, it looks so pretty outside, and I then know. it's like, hachoo. But then oh, I woke up this morning. It was 40 degrees. We had been cold. in the 70s or 80s. No. So I put on the corduroy the weather. this morning. Thanks for the tissue. <laughs> You're welcome. Nice you. to see you guys. So this is, uh, <laughs> this is happening again. Remember it happened uh, with Pharrell and then Robin Thicke with another Marvin Gaye song. Well, this one, listen. Um, jury selection is set to begin a copyright trial against um, music star Ed Sheeran. He's being sued over one of his songs. That the plaintiff, plaintiff's claim copies one of Marvin Gaye's classics, Let's Get It On. The plaintiffs are the heirs of Ed Townsend, who co-wrote that song, Here's the Sheeran song, Thinking Out Loud. Listen. Darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. And Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Let's get it on. Okay, so last year, Sheeran successfully fought a lawsuit that accused him of copying another of his hits, Shape of You. Is this what he said about the case after the case was dismissed? There's only so many notes and very few chords used in pop music. Coincidence is bound to happen if 60,000 songs are being released every day on Spotify. That's 22 million songs a year, and there's only 12 notes that are available. I'm not an entity. I'm not a corporation. I'm a human being. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. Lawsuits are not a pleasant experience, and I hope with this ruling, it means in the future, baseless claims like this can be avoided. All right, so that was after another one. So, I don't know. 
What do you think? I don't hear it. The similarity between the two, Don't but that's, it. I mean. But I've not seen, I've not heard the similarities between some before, and they've had massive settlements over it because of uh, fighting over Do you remember the family, I think Marvin Gaye's family, yeah. if I'm correct, sued over blurred lines because it sounded like, uh, got to give it up, keep on dancing. And? It was a blurred line. But this is the one that they. But this is, uh, but this is, this is not the family this time. This is actually the, the yeah. person who wrote the song. So yeah. we shall see. Yeah, Jury we shall selection. see what happens. Uh, speaking of lawsuits, the NAACP is now suing the state of Mississippi over what it says is separate and unequal policing in the city of Jackson. We have details on that lawsuit ahead. Also, a literacy crisis in the United States as more and more children struggle just to read. We'll tell you about a whole new way of teaching that's giving teachers and parents hope. NAACP suing Mississippi's governor and other state officials over new laws that expand control of policing and the judicial system in the city of Jackson. Governor Tate Rees signed the legislation into law on Friday. In a statement, the organization said, quote, the laws represent a state takeover of Jackson and strip residents of their right to democratically elect leaders. Senator Isabella Isabel Rosales joins us now from Atlanta. Good morning to you, Isabel. Critics say uh, that the, these changes put white conservatives in control over a Democratic city where more than 80% of the residents are black. Tell us about it. To you, these laws are new laws are certainly creating a divide here. Some people hope that it's going to save the capital city after a spike of crime, but others are seeing echoes of a racist past. Supporters of uh, the, these new laws are pointing to the homicide rate in Jackson, which has doubled over the past decade, peaking in 2021. The homicide rate 12 times the national average, making Jackson one of the deadliest cities in the U.S. So let's dig a little deeper into these new laws because they're important. What they're going to do is allow the state of Mississippi to expand the reach of state-controlled police to the entire city of Jackson. Now, this is a force that has not dealt with city law enforcement before. It is a force that does not answer to local officials, but rather to state-appointed leadership. Now, the flip side of these new laws, also the judicial system, major changes coming to that, including establishing a new court within the boundaries of a new capital complex improvement district. So the judge there, that's going to be appointed by the Republican state chief justice. And the prosecuting uh, attorneys, that they are also going to be appointed by the Republican Republican state attorney general. We heard from Governor Tate Reeves, who signed these bills into laws on Wednesday before he did that signing. Listen. I want what's best for Jackson. But for us to continue to see young kids getting killed in the streets, for us to continue to see property crimes that are happening here that are causing businesses to leave, we've got to make sure that we have law and order. And Don, as you mentioned, at the heart of this controversy really is representation. The legislators who introduce these bills, now laws, uh, represent districts outside of Jackson. The state legislature is primarily Republican and white. Jackson is primarily Democratic and over 80 percent black. The NAACP filed a lawsuit on Friday. Here's what they said really quickly. If elected officials in Mississippi want to help address the results of their negligence and improve the lives of Jackson residents, they should start with completing improvements to Jackson's water system, not undermining the constitutional rights of their citizens. Don. All right, Isabel, thank you so much. About one in three 
kids in America right now cannot read at a basic level of comprehension. I'm going to say that again because it is so startling and concerning. One in three American children are behind on reading. This is according to a key national exam. That has some schools rethinking their approach to teaching our children, again, embracing the basics. Phonics, our Athena Jones has been looking into all of this. I cannot believe that statistic. It's stunning. And, you know, we, I think we can all agree that the important uh, thing that schools should be doing is making sure our children can read, that they're literate, that they leave school able to read. But I've been looking into this over the past week, and what I found surprised me. Many schools across the country have been using an unproven, flawed theory to teach children to read, and it's not working. My name is Judy B. Jones. Before this school year, eight-year-old Dream James was struggling to read. Now... She's reading everything. I just like B and that's all. Before it was, I can't do it, I can't spell, I can't read too. Now it's, oh, I know how to sound this out and I know how to read this. The third grader at Panther Valley Elementary School in rural Pennsylvania had a hard time learning the basics of reading. Her school had introduced a new curriculum a few years ago based on the balanced literacy theory an approach used in some classrooms nationwide for over two decades. Rather than learning to sound out letter combinations, also called phonics, teachers focused on what's known as cueing, instructing children to use context and other clues to figure out words. This just explains to them what each syllable actually means. Teacher Amanda Cusco at first embraced this new approach. But then as we started kind of digging deeper and and getting into the instruction, you know, I sort of noticed something was missing. So how did it work? As they're reading, they are supposed to look at the picture. Oh, what's this word? Well, look at the picture. Do you maybe know a word part? What could that word be? What word would make sense there? So they weren't actually reading the letters. They weren't reading the words. They were guessing. That didn't work. We realized very quickly that students weren't acquiring the skills to actually sound out words, decode words, spell words. They weren't actually learning to read. By year in, just a quarter of Panther Valley's third graders could read at grade level. In fact, much of the country is facing a child literacy crisis. Just one in three fourth graders was at or above proficiency in reading last year, with nearly four in 10 performing below basic level. It's a social issue um, for all of us, and it's an equity issue across America. But a shift is underway. Education Week reports over the last decade, at least 29 states in the District of Columbia have begun to require an evidence-based approach to reading instruction. Mississippi started back in 2013 when they enacted legislation and policies around requiring teacher prep programs to base their training on the science of reading. From 2013, fast forward to 2019, they have 10 points gained. At Panther Valley Elementary, Principal Robert Palazzo also changed course, replacing balanced literacy after trying it for just a year and a half. Oh. Good job, cold. Cold. Syllable. We've seen students in third grades decoding skills, meaning sounding out words, um, increased from 20% um, at grade level in the beginning of the year to approximately 60% currently. Dream began the year reading at a first grade level and is now closer to a middle or end of second grade level. She and her mother couldn't be more proud. Now this is what she wants. This is what she likes. She loves 
to read. She's eager to like, oh, I can't wait to start fourth grade. I can't wait to, you know, to do all this because she's not low self-esteem no more. And you heard the mother say that she's not, she doesn't have low self-esteem anymore because now she can actually read. And this is important. Reading is so foundational for the rest of, of your education. And we now know that more than half the states are now requiring more of a focus on the science of reading. These are tried and true, proven methods to teach reading, like sounding out the letters in a word. And this is the way many of us learn to read. Some of this comes from parents who saw what was going on during the pandemic, watching their kids trying to be, trying to learn to read. And they're thinking, that, that's, not, that's not how we learn. What's going on here? So really, really interesting. Decades and decades of, like, facts, right, that show phonics, right? So, so then why not? Wow. It's, it's stunning. It's, it's this sort of theory took hold and it kind of took off and people become very much committed Crazy. to it and don't want to backtrack. But the thing is, you know, kids have to be able to recognize new words and be able to sound and them out pushed and not by be guessing at pictures. Sorry to interrupt. It was pushed by some big education companies, too, right? Yeah. And so there's always money, business involved. Yeah. Really good look at that, Athena. Thank, Thank you. you. Also this morning, a dangerous rescue operation by U.S. Special Forces evacuating American diplomats and their families out of Sudan. But thousands of American citizens are still there, trapped. We're going to ask the White House what their plan is to get those people to safety. And a Florida sheriff going head-to-head -head against a group of neo-Nazis spreading hate in his town. When you're trying to crush a radical group of cowardly scumbags, Unity and sunshine destroy it. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Today, jury selection is going to begin in the trial of the man who is accused of going on that deadly rampage inside Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue. That was in 2018. That was the shooting that left 11 people dead. It was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack ever to happen in the United States. That's according to the Anti-Defamation League. CNN's Danny Freeman is live in Pittsburgh this morning. Danny, obviously, you know, for the victims and their families, this has been such a long time coming. What are we expecting during this trial as it's getting kicked off today? Well, Caitlin, let me orient you for a second. We're in downtown Pittsburgh right now, outside of the federal courthouse. We're about five miles away from Squirrel Hill. It's a neighborhood. That's where the Tree of Life synagogue was and, of course, where that horrific shooting happened about four and a half years ago. We're expecting jury selection to, be, uh, to begin today, really within the next hour or so. And as you said, it's been a long, contentious road to the start of this death penalty case. But I want to bring viewers up to speed as to how we got to this point. Remember, this started on October 27th, 2018. It was a Saturday morning. Prosecutors say Robert Bowers arrived at the Tree of Life Synagogue armed with multiple guns. And there were members of three Jewish congregations actually worshiping that morning at the synagogue at the time. At that point, prosecutors say that Bowers opened fire on the synagogue and then entered the synagogue and started shooting. And prosecutors also say that Bowers said he wanted to kill Jews during the attack. And also then prosecutors found more anti Semitic posts online attributed to his name. Well, 11 people were ultimately killed. Others were injured. And Bowers was charged with murder and other, or I should say, multiple hate crimes in addition. And because of that, this is a death penalty case. Now, Caitlin, Bowers has retained 
defense attorney Judy Clark in this case. If that name sounds familiar, Judy Clark has represented other high-profile federal death penalty defendants in the past. That includes the Unabomber. That also includes uh, Josar Zarnaya from the Boston Marathon bombing. Well, his defense team, they said that they would take a deal with life in prison if it took death penalty off the table, but federal prosecutors have not budged on that issue. Again, jury selection begins today. This trial could go as long as July. Yeah. Caitlin? And of course, we're just thinking of everyone there. I mean, I was I remember being there covering that in the aftermath when the president went and visited there in Squirrel Hill. Just the way that community responded was really something to see. We'll pay attention to this trial closely. Danny, thank you so much. The hate and fringe conspiracy theories pushed by the Tree of Life shooting suspect have not gone away. They are spreading. They are increasing. One example, the Washington Post reports that hundreds of anti-Semitic flyers were dropped along the street from the Daytona, across the street, I should say, from the Daytona 500, and they prompted one of the suspected gunmen's online rants. That's the same location where neo-Nazis held up signs like this. Henry Ford was right about the Jews. That's what one read. The sheriff there isn't taking it anymore. Sheriff Michael Chitwood is naming and shaming the people behind the hate speech, even though it's put a target on his back. Watch. When you're trying to crush a radical group of cowardly scumbags, unity and sunshine destroy it. There's a lot of people in this room and there's a lot of people around this country of the Jewish faith who are on their hit list. They try to besmirch your character. They try to put death threats out on you and threaten you and your family. Well, I wear that as a badge of honor because I, too, by these clown group, want to shut my big mouth and put a bullet in the back of my head. Go for it. That's my message to you. Wow. Saying go for it did not fall on deaf ears, apparently. Three men have now been arrested for making online threats against Chitwood. One allegedly said, just shoot Chitwood in the head, murder him. Another said, I will kill Chitwood, mark my words. And another, I'm going to shoot Mike Chitwood. So how is he responding to all of this? He's greeting them at the airport. Tyler, Very good I'm Volusia intro. County Sheriff Mike Chitwood. Welcome to Volusia County, Florida. Thank you. Enjoy your stay. Well, Sheriff <laughs> Chitwood joins us now. Thank you for being here. It's so astounding to us sitting here watching what you faced, I think to everyone watching, to how you respond. What, as I understand it, this is not just about the threats to you. This is about threats to your family, right? The people that didn't choose to be in the position you're in. Yeah, that's correct. And I've been doing this for 34 years. And good morning. And thank you for having me on. Uh, my family, my daughters, my grandkids, my parents didn't sign up for this. Yeah. But when you got a bunch of cowards that hide behind the anonymity of social media, you know, they, they crank up their base through that. Does the tactic work to name and shame to greet them at the airport? Right. Because you're you obviously want to bring this to light. But I think you really want solutions. You want this to stop. Yeah, I, I wanted to stop, and I don't know if history's on my side of being able to end the hate. But what we can do is when you turn the camera onto them and you put up their arrest photos, when you put up their criminal histories and really show the community what a rogues gallery of criminals and thugs they are, it kind of, it kind of sheds a different light on who, who you're dealing with. Yeah, you know, you, I, we remember this press conference that you held back in February 
and there were a lot of explicit examples of what was going on in the anti-Semitism in your community. It's very hard to listen to, but I think it's important. So we're going to play just a short part of this for people to sort of wrap their heads around. Leave our country, go back to Israel. You know where you bomb Palestinian kids? Where we fund you stupid Jews? $8 billion a year? Can you, can you imagine? I mean, you don't have to because it's happening. How common is stuff like that there? You know, it wasn't common. I think that's what really set me off. Uh, I feel like my community, a home invasion robbery occurred that uh, a segment of my, my population was targeted for their religion. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stand for people to be targeted for their religion, for their race, for their sexual orientation or ethnic background. I'm not going to stand for it. You have supported a proposed law there that would actually make anti-Semitic incidents, so things like we just saw, a felony. Talk to me about the law specifically, why you support it, and does it have a shot of becoming law? Yeah, it's House Bill 269. I think I expect it should be signed sometime this week, and it enhances penalties for what you just saw. If you go on private property, which is what we're seeing, and you drop off hateful literature targeting someone for their religion, it's a felony. If you use a projector to shine hateful messages on the side of, of private property, it's a felony. If you get up in somebody's face with a bullhorn and you start screaming anti-Semitic uh, remarks to them, it's a fel it's felony stalking. So we're really looking forward to this. You have previously been a supporter of former President Trump, and the number of hate groups surged 55% under the beginning few years of his presidency. That's according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. He is the GOP frontrunner for 2024. I wonder if you have any message to him on this front or if you think he bears any responsibility. Uh, just from where I sit, when Charlottesville happened and the former president said, we're as good people on both sides, that was the whistle call that it's okay to be an extremist. And let me, let me say about extremism, whether you burn a police station down, burn a police car up, or you're out there trying to wipe out a race or a religion, that is extremism. There is no such thing, in my opinion, as left or right. It's extremism, and it should never be tolerated in American society. So your message to him in this campaign? You gotta, you gotta help us here, Mr. President. You gotta help us. If, if you become the president, you gotta help us. You cannot be cuddling and, and, and cozying up to these far extreme groups that want to destroy America. Thank you, Sheriff, for not just for this, but for what you do, for what you're standing up for. It means a lot. Thank you. Thanks. CNN This Morning continues now. It out. Good morning, everyone. That was a Hollywood inning ending for Wrexham and the team's owners, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. After years of struggling, the Welsh soccer club has now finally achieved its dream of a major promotion. <laughs> Look at that. that. Tears. Tears. Wow. Wow. Congratulations to them. We're going to talk more about that. Plus, President Biden set to name a campaign manager as he prepares to run for re-election, but new polls are showing that Many Americans are not excited about a Trump-Biden rematch. Also, the FAA is investigating after engines caught fire on two different American Airlines planes. 
But we're going to start in Sudan this morning, where the U.S. has now launched a daring rescue operation to evacuate Americans from the war zone. The Pentagon says that special ops forces blew into the, flew into the war-torn Sudanese capital and helicopters to pick up U.S. diplomats and their families. We're told the mission was fast, it was clean, and U.S. troops were on the ground for less than an hour. Here's a photo of Secretary of State Antony Blinken tensely monitoring the evacuation as it was underway on Saturday. The U.S. and several other nations have now been scrambling to evacuate their citizens as country in the fighting has raged between two rival military factions. Blinken says that all U.S. personnel have been safely evacuated, but there are still an estimated 16,000 Americans who live in Sudan, most of them dual nationals. CNN senior international correspondent Sam Kiley is live where the rescue operation was launched. Sam, obviously a lot of questions about how this actually went down, what this looked like on Saturday, but also what it means that these countries, including the U.S., are now making this decision to get people out. Well, uh, Caitlin, I think what it means is that the uh, ongoing violence, and it is escalating very rapidly, not just in Khartoum, but elsewhere in the country, has made life unlivable for members of the international community. Now, there's a huge number of aid organizations there, business people. There are students, too, from around Africa studying or have been studying in Khartoum and uh, on demand. It's uh, Twin City on the Nile. Uh, and life has become impossible because the fighting between these two factions is in street to street all over the city, not in pockets here and there, hither and thither. Uh, we've just spoken to a German evacuee who's been in touch with a friend of hers, a Sudanese friend, who says there are dead bodies outside the building where he lives. He's staying there. His family uh, are being evacuated to elsewhere in Sudan. But that is an option that's available uh, only to the Sudanese who've got a bit of money. For many Sudanese, they're trapped, as indeed are large numbers of American citizens and others in the international community. Now, the U.S., Caitlin, uh, led the field in the deployment of special forces and this very dramatic uh, evacuation using three Chinook helicopters, refueling in Addis Ababa out of Djibouti here and then going in. But they're saying that's all they're going to be doing so far. Here in Djibouti, the airport is teeming with at least 11 international military organizations, all sending their most elite troops onto the ground, many of them still continuing with evacuation operations. Uh, the Egyptians also trying to put together, successfully put together evacuations over land. There's a lot of focus now in trying to get people or get people to get themselves to Port Sudan, which is potentially a safe exit position. But this is really the beginning of an evacuation process in the middle of a civil war. By no means the end of it, Caitlin. Yeah, certainly not. And clearly no end in sight, according to what these officials here in the U.S. are seeing. Sam, thank you so much for that update. So I want to step back for a moment and take a quick look at how we got here. A battle for power in Sudan. At the heart of the conflict are these two men that are up on your screen right there. Sudan's military leader, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the commander of the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, RSF, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Now, until recently, they were allies. They worked together to topple Sudan's former dictator, President Omar al-Bashir, in 2019 and played a crucial role in orchestrating the country's military coup in 2021. But tensions arose over how to integrate the RSF into the country's military as part of plans to restore civilian rule. So the key question here is, who would be subordinate to whom under this new hierarchy? Well, sources tell CNN that these hostilities are the culmination of what both parties view as an existential fight 
for dominance. So that is how we got here. So joining us now, the White House's National Security Council spokesperson, spokesman, and that is Mr. John Kirby. John, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. So you heard Sam Kiley there on the ground. The U.S. was able to successfully get diplomats out, calling it fast and clean. Why not do the same sort of operation with citizens? Can the U.S. carry out a large-scale operation like that for citizens? Well, we have military forces still pre-positioned nearby in the region, uh, Don, if they're needed. But quite frankly, the situation is not conducive and not safe to try to conduct some kind of a, a larger military evacuation of American citizens. You saw from yourself from Sam's reporting, actually, the violence is increasing. It's more dangerous today than it was just yesterday or the day before. Uh, and so the best advice we can give to those Americans who did not abide by our warnings to leave Sudan and not to travel to Sudan is to stay sheltered in place, stay safe and secure and off the streets of Khartoum. We are doing what we can to help guide people who can move out to get out to uh, for potentially like land convoys that are moving. In fact, there's several dozen Americans that we know of uh, that are in a, a UN-led uh, convoy that's uh, making its way to Port Sudan uh, over ground, Don. And in fact, the U.S. military is flying unmanned aerial assets over that convoy so that we can maintain some sort of situational awareness and overwatch for them uh, to help protect them as they make their way to Port Sudan. We're also deploying naval assets to Port Sudan in the Red Sea in case Americans who get out to Port Sudan want to be, uh, be transported okay. elsewhere or need any kind of care. All right, that's in case on their own. But I just have to ask you, because, uh, you, you know, this fast and clean mission, you're saying that it's dangerous there. And we did hear it's dangerous in Sam's reporting. But Sudan's military chief said on Saturday morning, John, that his troops would help evacuate U.S. diplomats and citizens. He said, and citizens. But the U.S. Embassy said that it was too dangerous. Do you think that there was a missed opportunity to get private citizens, U.S. citizens out? No, sir. In fact, we are doing everything we can to help guide them. Uh, if there's a safe way to get out, uh, we're helping guide them and give them information. We're in touch uh, with hundreds of American citizens uh, that are there who, want, who, who may want to leave. It's up to them, of course, to decide to do that. Uh, we're doing the best we can to give them the information that they need that they can rely on and to do so safely. But honestly, the fighting in Khartoum is not in a situation where we would want people moving about too freely or too aggressively right now. The safest thing for many Americans to do who didn't get out when they were warned to get out is to stay safe right now uh, and let's okay. see if the situation can improve. In the meantime, Don, and I know I'm running on here, but we are working closely with both military factions and these leaders, uh, General Hamedi, General Burhan, to get them to put down their arms and abide by a ceasefire they both say they want so that the conditions can be more safe. Okay, so you said you were in touch with hundreds, but there are about 16,000 or so people who have to get out of this country. Are you able to, you're not able to get in touch with all of them, right? Well, Don, I want to push back on this idea that there's 16,000 Americans who want to get out. Uh, we don't have firm uh, estimates of the exact number of Americans, citizens who are in Sudan. They don't have to register with us. They don't have to tell us that they're there. We think the, the vast majority uh, of these American citizens in Sudan, and they're not all in Khartoum, are dual nationals. These are people who grew up in Sudan, who have families there, work there, businesses there, who don't want to leave. So I think we need to be careful about that number. Uh, there's a much smaller population of American citizens who don't work for the government, but work with partner agencies like the American School or Fulbright Scholar Program that we are in touch with. And we're trying to get them the best information we can to get out. And as, as I said, several dozen we know today are in that U.N. convoy heading to Port Sudan. OK, so we talked about how dangerous it is. Is the U.S. in contact with either of these leaders uh, of these factions yes. that are fighting? Yes. And there are efforts, yes, I, and there are yes. efforts by the U.S. to de-escalate or mediate. 
hundred percent, Don. We've been in touch with them almost every day since the beginning of this crisis. The fighting really started a week ago Saturday. Uh, we've been in direct touch with them at various levels, Don, not just, not just at the State Department, but even our senior military leaders have been in touch with them because these are two military men uh, to try to get them to, again, abide by the ceasefire they both say they want. What about the president telling them to stop? We have been communicating with uh, both leaders, again, at very various levels, and, and we'll continue to do that. Okay. Is there anything that can be done to target the leaders to get them to stop the fighting, like sanctions, targeting their wealth, et cetera? We have a lot of tools at our uh, disposal, and we're sort of working our way through that right now. But again, the focus is making sure that we get the ceasefire in place, we get the violence to stop, we get the tensions de-escalated, so that you can, again, have those kinds of conversations going forward. I don't want to get ahead of decisions we haven't made yet. Our focus is really getting the violence down and helping get uh, those people who want to leave Sudan to be able to do so safely uh, and provide them uh, the best options and information to do that. I want to talk Russia and the Security Council now. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is in the U.S. In, in a couple of hours, he is chairing the U.N. Security yeah. Council meeting. Elizabeth Whalen, the sister of Paul Whalen, who, was, who has been detained in Russia for more than four years, will be attending that meeting. Are U.S. officials planning to talk to Lavrov about Whalen and other uh, Americans detained in Russia, like journalist Evan Grishkovic? We haven't missed an opportunity to talk to Russian officials uh, about both Paul and now Evan in trying to get both of these uh, men out and back with their families uh, where they belong. I don't have any specific conversations with Mr. Lavrov to speak to today. I um, mean, you're right, he's here because they now have the presidency temporarily. It's a figurehead position uh, of the Security Council. But I can tell you, we haven't missed a beat in talking to Russian officials. And there's, an, in fact, there's a proposal on the table, it's been on the table, to try to get Mr. Whalen out and the Russians haven't been willing to negotiate or talk about that proposal. Proposal, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop. Are, are you concerned about for not issuing uh, Russian journalists uh, visas to come here and cover? Um, Sergei Lavrov is not happy about that. Are you concerned that, about the effect that it could have on people like Gershkovich? We, we, we want to make sure that we get Evan and Paul out. Uh, uh, but, uh, but look, I mean, uh, the Russian state media, I mean, they don't, uh, th th these are propaganda organs. Um, and uh, we, you know, again, we feel like it's important to speak up and stand up for freedom of the press, a free press, an independent press uh, that, is, uh, that is able to do its job freely. Mr. Gershkovich is a reporter. He's a journalist. He's not a spy. And journalism is not a crime. Uh, and again, we're going to continue to send that message. And finally, I want to ask you about President Biden, set to announce his reelection campaign this week. The president is facing several international challenges, including this one we talked about, Sudan, Ukraine, rising tensions with China and so forth. Will he be able, do you think, to keep his eye on these issues and campaign at the same time? Well, I won't sp talk about the politics of this, uh, Don. That's not my lane, and I certainly won't uh, get into speculating uh, about uh, 2024. Again, that's that's not my place. Uh, I can tell you that uh, President Biden uh, is laser-focused on securing American interest overseas, making sure, as we saw over the weekend, that we're, we're making it safe for our diplomats to do their job and for our military to continue to defend ourselves. Uh, there is a lot on the plate, from Ukraine to the Indo-Pacific. Obviously, in, in Africa this weekend, uh, the president's focused on all of that. He's being up updated every day, certainly on the situation in Sudan. Uh, he is absolutely confident that he can continue and will continue uh, to do what he has to do to defend our national security interests and advance our foreign policy overseas. John Kirby, we appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah, really important interview. All right, some frightening moments for passengers on board of two different American Airlines flights in the past few days, both captured on camera. Take a look at this first one. This is a flight over Columbus, Ohio, on Sunday, where a possible bird strike is believed to have sparked an engine fire 
officials, though, tell us the plane was able to land safely. And here's the other one from Thursday. When the plane never got off the ground in Charlotte, North Carolina, no one was injured. Also this morning, the dancing world has lost one of their own, former judge of Dancing with the Stars, Len Goodman. I loved it. I loved being a part of it, and I loved working with you. You were great. Len, I could not have done it without you. Oh, I'm loving it. Oh, yeah! What? Thank you so much for letting me be a part of Dancing with the Stars. Len Goodman was 78 years old. He died of bone cancer on Saturday. He was a professional dancer until he ventured into television, was a judge on Dancing with the Stars from 2005 up until last year, and also judged the British version of this show, Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, I had no idea until you just told the, our audience. I had no idea. And he was such a, like, fun, a gregarious, such a just presence. real, yes. Oh, too bad. Yeah. So Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that the real leader of the House Republicans isn't Kevin McCarthy, who she says is really in charge. Also, Speaker McCarthy is working to solidify support for his debt ceiling legislation. We'll speak to one Republican House member who says she's leaning no. South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mace is here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, it's a high-stakes week ahead for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who is getting mixed reactions from some of his fellow Republicans for his sweeping debt ceiling plan. McCarthy is vowing to bring it for a vote this week. We will hold a vote this week and we will pass it and we will send it to the Senate. And for more than 80 days where the president has ignored us, called people names for things that he even voted for himself, makes no sense or logic to it. I think as president and the leader of the free world, this is one of the problems we have challenges around this country, around the world. He needs to show leadership and come to the negotiating table instead of put us in default. When referring to Biden's past positions there, I should note McCarthy was referring to his time as a senator. McCarthy's plan right now, though, proposes raising the nation's $31.4 trillion debt limit by $1.5 trillion or through March 31st, 2024, whichever comes first. But it also proposes blocking President Biden's plan to grant student loan forgiveness, kill new IRS funding that was enacted as part of the as part of the Inflation Reduction Act and repealing green energy tax credits. Many House Republicans say they have not yet decided if they are going to support that plan, including our next guest who is joining us now, South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy May. So, Congresswoman, that is the first question this morning. Does Kevin McCarthy have the votes? Does he have your vote? Well, well, that remains to be seen later this week. But I have to tell you, real Americans don't get to operate at a deficit. And Congress needs to come back to the real world. If you look at over the last six years alone, under President Trump and President Biden, uh, $13 trillion were, was added to the debt. Um, both sides are at fault here. And I just don't understand why we can't have a conversation about how we're going to cut spending, like really cut spending, or balance the budget over the next decade or so and show the American people we're going to be responsible with their tax dollars. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I want to see us push for more aggressively. So you haven't decided yet whether or not you're going to support Correct. this? 
Right. I'm, I'm leaning against voting for it at this time because I just don't understand why we can't have a conversation about balancing the budget, cutting spending, and doing so over the next 10 years because inflation is still on the rise. We need to grow the economy. You've got to cut spending and cut taxes and, and rein some of that in in order to grow the economy at a rate that can overtake the debt that we've taken on in this country. It's Monday. This vote could happen as soon as Wednesday or Thursday. I don't have to tell you that. What does Kevin McCarthy need to do to change your mind about voting yes? Or are you pretty firmly leaning no, you say? We're still going through uh, the plan. I have other concerns, especially on green energy. A state like South Carolina, we have a lot of solar farms and solar energy, both presidential and commercial. I want to find out and figure out what kind of adverse impact it might have on the state of South Carolina before we finally make that decision. And there are other concerns, and we're just still wading through it. And the devil's always in the details. Okay, so you want changes, it sounds like, before you would vote yes. Correct. But we'll see if they're if they'll if they'll do that. But the things that I'm talking about, you know, balancing the budget in 10 years is not going to be easy. I blame both sides for the situation that we're in today. And both sides need to come to the table and figure this thing out. I don't think we're going to default. That's a fear tactic by the left. We have plenty of tax revenue to pay the interest on the debt, about 11 times that tax revenue. But we need to get serious about spending in this country. And neither side is willing to have that conversation. And that's what's disappointing with all this at this juncture now. $31 trillion in debt. Given you're not a yes yet, and McCarthy was saying yesterday he feels confident he has the votes. Obviously, you know it's a razor-thin margin. Is he wrong that he has the votes? What have you heard from other Republicans? I, I haven't been whipping the votes, so I don't know where others are. I know that there, there are several um, that are going to be a yes that might be a surprise to some people, and there'll be some surprise noses, no's as well. Um, we'll see how it ends up in the next few days. His argument seemed to be that if Republicans could get this passed this week, it would give them some leverage, help or force Democrats to come to the negotiating table. Do you think that's that's just wrong? Well, that remains to be seen. I mean, we've we've had a really tough time, I would say, over the last couple of years, having both sides come to get together at the table to make some tough decisions, whether we're talking about legislation or the budget or spending. And we really need to do that. I mean, I hope that it can be leveraged for that. But so far, the president said he won't even come to the table. And that's wrong, too. We need both sides to come together. Both sides have contributed to the $31 trillion of debt. Both sides need to make tough decisions. The average American has to balance their checkbook. I just don't understand why we keep kip kicking this can down the road and do absolutely nothing to curb our spending or be at least a little more responsible so we can balance things out over the next 10 years. I don't understand why that can't be a part of the conversation. Yeah, and the White House has said they are staying firm on their position. We'll see what happens. I do also want to get your reaction to the Supreme Court uh, ruling on fr uh, well, their move that they made on Friday night, blocking that lower court's decision to try to limit or block the um, distribution of medication abortion. What was your reaction to that, given it's clear this fight is far from over? Right. The fight is far from over. But for now, the Supreme Court did make the right decision. I came on your show two weeks ago talking about that mm -hmm. judge's decision. And in part, the basis for his decision was completely unconstitutional, using a law that the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, said was unconstitutional back in 1983. This is an issue where Republicans need to think about whether or not they want to continue losing elections to the left and some on the far left want abortion up until birth, or if they want to moderate some of their extreme views and say, we can be 
be pro-life and be pro-woman at the same time and talk about what we're doing to protect women who've been raped, girls who are victims of incest, what we're doing to improve OBGYN access in rural areas and contraception and contraceptives to those areas that don't have OBGYN doctors. What are we doing to protect women and being pro-woman while also being pro-life? And that's a winning message and winning policy for the American people. And I want to see us act on that. It's very important right now, more than ever, because people are angry. I see it in my state and in my district. I'm in a very purple district. Yeah. And people want to see solutions. They don't want to continue to see the far right extreme take over this conversation. Yeah, you've been very outspoken on that. You're also on the House Oversight Committee, and you recently went to the Treasury Building to look at these SARS, these suspicious activity reports. This is what you said upon leaving the Treasury Department. The amount of money that we're talking about in these suspicious activity reports is astronomical. And the accusations therein, the source of the funding, where the, where the money's going, the shell companies, prostitution rings, et cetera, it's insanity to me that it's not been investigated in the way that it should be. Now, this is in relation to the uh, investigations that Republicans are conducting when it comes to the Biden family. That is quite an allegation to make, though. Do you have evidence? And how much information yes. and what this you saw? This is not a conspiracy theory. We reviewed over, there were over 170 suspicious activity reports. And I'm going to be very clear. I did that video right as I was walking out of the Treasury. And then the far left wanted to call me and label me a conspiracy theorist afterwards. It's not a conspiracy. These were things that I read about while I was there. And we're talking about potentially up to a dozen Biden family members. And for years now, the left has said no one is above the law. Well, if that's the case, put your money where your mouth is. Have this thing fully investigated to the fullest extent of the law. And if people, the average American, saw what we saw, they would question why it's not being investigated. Because the allegations that I made are absolutely what we were reading about last week. And I'm not, I mean, I'm pretty, I call, I, I call balls and strikes, okay, uh, on both sides. And I'm being very clear and very honest about what we saw. I can't share all the details because it's confidential information. But every time we overturn a stone, there's more to be investigated because you see another dumpster fire. And you're like, what is going on and why is this happening? That's my question, because when it comes to these SARS reports, you know as well as I do, not all the information in there is verified. This is what gets reported. This is what they're looking at. It doesn't mean that wrongdoing has been committed. And so I think that's the question that people had is walking out of there after seeing this, you know, how do you know what yeah. you saw is verified to come out and make an allegation like that, which you know is something that happens to members of Congress all the time. Uh, necessarily when it comes to these allegations, they shouldn't, you know, the question of whether or not they should be made if you don't actually know that, that information is verified that you saw. I would just ask the Department of Justice to follow the money. There are more questions than answers. There are more Biden families involved than we know. And if it's all above board, then say it's all above board. But when you look at what's going on and the sources of some of the funding that's known and unknown and where it's going, you have a lot of questions. And you'll ask yourself, why hasn't this been investigated to the fullest extent of the law. It's very damning, the things that we read in those documents. Well, we would like to see the evidence. I know the chairman of the House Oversight Committee says he's going to hold a press conference this week. Uh, I do want to ask you, because an attorney for Hunter Biden has sent a letter to the deputy inspector general requesting a review of a former Trump aide who allegedly acquired and published online these financial activities, these reports of Hunter Biden. Do you believe that that should be investigated as well? 
no one is above the law, and I've been very clear. Uh, if someone has broken the law, they should be investigated to the fullest extent of the law. I don't care if they have an R or a D by their name. And I will tell you, the American people, they don't trust Congress. They don't trust D.C. It's because they see people in power, people with money, get away with things that they could never get away with. And so I'm all for investigating whomever has broken the law and hold them to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah, I think people just want evidence for those allegations. Absolutely. Congressman Nancy Mace, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. The former police officer who shot and killed Dante Wright in suburban Minneapolis out of prison. Kim Potter was released earlier this morning. She served about 16 months of her two-year sentence. A jury convicted Potter of manslaughter in December of 2021. Potter said she accidentally grabbed her gun instead of her taser when she shot Wright, a black motorist, two years ago. He was pulled over for having expired tags and for hanging an air freshener. During that stop, officers learned that he had an outstanding warrant and attempted to arrest him. But Wright pulled away, tried to drive off. A warning, this may be difficult to watch. Well, the shooting happened nearly a year after George Floyd's death and led to days of protests in Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis. President Biden finalizing plans to announce his 2024 presidential reelection bid, but new polling shows voters do not want a Trump-Biden rematch. We'll dive into those numbers. The Welsh soccer team owned by actor Ryan Reynolds just got a well-earned promotion. <laughs> Hug it out, guys. Hug it out. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to tell you how they did it and where the team is headed. Coming up. This is the moment that Wrexham, a soccer team that has played in England's fifth tier for 15 years, finally got promoted out of the National League. The crowd at the old race course ground rushing the field as team owners Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney celebrated with a huge long embrace. Very you happy of you. Who? Paul Rudd. Really? Yeah. I love that. The two actors brought the club, bought the club in 2021, documented their story in the FX documentary series Welcome to Wrexham. The team's popularity in the United States has skyrocketed. ESPN2, even televising some of its games. And this summer, Wrexham is coming to America to face two of the biggest clubs in the sport. Manchester United and Chelsea. With us now, TNT and HBO Max soccer analyst and former MLS and U.S. men's national team midfielder Kyle Martino. Good morning. Paul, Paul Rudd filmed that after, after 12 pints. <laughs> <laughs> what a day they had. He, his camera work was really good. Yeah. It, was it was very steady. steady. Is this a Ted Lasso moment for these guys? Like, it's kind of, to get here is crazy. I mean, it's interesting you say that. I, I think that... Um, Ted Lasso is probably going to be studied in like Harvard sociology courses at one point in terms of like the inflection point that the number one sport on the planet, we, we don't have to waste time debating that, the beautiful game in a, in a country full of sports and sports fans that can consume an incredible amount of sports. T Ted Lasso and this story is opening up, I think, one of the coolest parts of soccer as it exists as an ancient sport. This idea of promotion relegation, this, this idea of, of a team playing in not, not even what's called the, the football league, right? They're outside of kind of the professional side of the table. To be able to win and climb the rung and get up to the level where, you know, you can play a Manchester United, you can play against these teams. I think that, that's the cool part of this story is the sporting meritocracy of, of promotion relegation as it exists over there.
Love it. What about Paul Mullen? 47 goals so good. this season? Yeah, and that's the other thing. There, there's, there's a player named James Vardy. The last time we had this conversation is when Leicester went, and you'll remember that story years ago, where they went and won the Premier League. That was a team that went through the same sort of scenario of climbing up through the ranks. And, and when you think of it as an American sports fan, you know, we, we kind of celebrate mediocrity and like you, you're the worst team in the league. Well, here's the first draft pick. And so what, what's wild about these stories is some of these players that have side jobs, you know, they're, they're kind of semi-professionals. And Jamie Vardy was a player on that team for Leicester that ended up playing for England and becoming a, a Premier League winner. So that's the cool part is, is these players that are no-name players become household names by, by winning and, and going up. Okay, but can we talk about the promotion relegation thing a little more? Because there is a clip on the show that explains it, which I think is very helpful yeah, for people Yeah, we would need like half me. an hour to explain it, but we'll try to do it in 30 seconds. Yeah, but like, I, like traffic and like college football, we're like, what is happening here? But I, I do want to play this to just explain how this works and how different it is. Imagine, uh, if you will, the New York Yankees lose 150 games in a season, they finish dead last and they have to drop down a league and the following year play against the likes of the Toledo Mudhens and the Sacramento River Cats. And if they keep losing enough and they keep dropping leagues, then eventually they end up playing beer league softball in Ithaca. And then I called Humphrey and I was like, you had a club that had an infrastructure that could at least support an evening of the balance sheet. Can't you theoretically take a team that's in the lowest league and bring them to the top? He said yes. So what's next for them? I mean, staying up, right? So that's the other thing is this, this moment of elation. Uh, you know, when you go up, TV rights are bigger, so you get a little bit more money, but you got to be careful to spend that money wisely. So the hardest thing to do when you climb the table and you get up to the next division is, of course, you were the biggest in your pond. Now you're in a bigger pond and there's faster fish. So they're in a tougher division. So staying in that league is everything. I think that's the, that's the thing that everyone worries about is you get really excited, you go up, and then immediately you, you, you finish bottom of that table and you drop back down. Did they spend a lot of money and are they making a lot of money now or well, are they getting their investment back? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think this story, if you tried to do the calculus on how they succeeded, they're not the only famous people that went over and bought a lower division team. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. I was a part of the ownership with Steve Nash and, and Stu Holden and Robert Sarver, and we bought Mallorca and had back-to-back promotions, and they're in La Liga now. But, but 95% of the efforts to do what they're doing fail. This is a really hard thing to do. So the thing they have is storytelling, right? Yeah. Now we all know it. Now that we all have our phones out, I'm here this morning. You know, five years ago, we wouldn't be sitting here telling a story like this. So, so you're right, Ted Lasso, the, the growth of the game in this country, our, our women World Cup team being one of the best in the country this summer, hopefully going again to win a World Cup. So 2026 is going to be the World Cup in the United States. Stories like this, I think, are going to make people you know, speculate. Can, can we go over and buy a team? Can, can we do this? Because the, the top division teams, you know, the, the Fenway Sports Group that own Boston Red Sox yeah. and the Glaciers who own, obviously, Manchester United, some of the biggest European clubs in the world are owned by Americans. I, I love that some of some of these speculative Americans are going, listen, we can tell a big story. The, the better story is on the way up, not staying there. So right. this is going to be fascinating to follow. Staying there season two, getting there season one. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the, winning the Premier League is is, is 20 years down Probably just won a big pot of money this weekend from winning the marathon. Are you, are you guys buying a so team? We're gonna, I think we should just I buy in. a First of all, is that I why you came home me? from yeah. a half marathon with a medal that everyone gets. And my daughter was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. We went out to brunch. She's all other people with a medal. She's no. like, Mom, you didn't win. Everyone gets everyone a medal. Everyone gets a trophy. Participation. <laughs> 
You're like, well, I, f I finished, all right? Like, that's all I need. Finished is There's a lot of people that didn't These finish These legs, at my age, Wait. can finish. We're in, I'm, I'm I wouldn't happy. even try it. Kyle, thank you <laughs> very much. It was Thanks, great. Kyle. Yeah, good to see you. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in Japan this morning on a, quote, international trade mission and answering questions about a possible White House run. I'm not I'm not a candidate, so we'll see if uh, if and when that changes. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not a candidate. So Dana Bash joins us down next to discuss. <laughs> so happening this morning, President Biden and his team of advisors are finalizing plans to announce his 2024 reelection bid. A former President Trump is already the expected frontrunner for Republicans. But in a new poll, voters say they don't want either Biden or Trump to run in 2024. Joining us now, CNN's chief political correspondent and co-anchor of State of the Union, the one and only Dana Bash. <laughs> good morning. Wow, that was a good intro, Don. Thank you. I practiced <laughs> it was, it was that. such feeling. I Thank was you. at in front of the mirror last night going, the <laughs> Dana Bash. Dana, good morning. So what do you, th what do you think voters are saying here? Obviously, they do not want 2020 all over again. They're like, let's move on to somebody else. Is that what they're saying? Yes. I mean, if you look, at, you look at these numbers and then you look more deeply into other numbers, if you t take Biden out and you take Trump out, it's the same, uh, same story in that people are looking for, in theory, something new. But in practice, when you look at how this goes down, Donald Trump, right now, we are very early in the process. We cannot say that enough. But right now, he is the front runner among the voters that will make him the Republican candidate, uh, the Republican nominee, rather. And Joe Biden is president. So he has a very big advantage. And there is nobody even remotely viable right now who is going to challenge him. So that's the way the system works. And that's it looks like. If the if the uh, election were right now, that's what we would get. It's mm -hmm. not right now, and that's particularly important again to say when it comes to the Republican uh, nomination process. Yeah, it's very important to note. But there is obviously one person who may be considering trying to challenge Trump for that Republican nomination. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is on a trip that is unusual for a sitting governor to take. This is in Japan. He's doing a multi-country. Tour. But when he was in Japan, Dana, he was asked about falling behind Trump in some of these polls when it comes to who they want to be the Republican candidate. This is how he responded. I'm not I'm not a candidate, so we'll see if uh, if and when that changes. <laughs> what did you make of that, Dana? I, he it's getting down a lot of reaction he, in Trump world, I'll say. Well, he was looking down as if he was looking for the place where he could hit the button so that the earth could open and he could, <laughs> he could disappear. <laughs> That's what I, I took away from his body language there. Uh, look, it, it's, we expect him to say that, particularly on the international stage, to be fair, where he's there uh, in his capacity as a sitting governor of Florida. Uh, he's not going to say anything political or shouldn't say anything political uh, with regard to his own future there. But the other thing I was thinking about, guys, is back in uh, May, I believe it was, early June of 2015, I accompanied a then former Florida governor, Jeb Bush, on an international trip. Uh, he was in, uh, in, in Latvia and some of the other former Soviet countries. He, we actually went to Poland as well. And it was part of a, 
a strategy to show the, the, the voters, particularly the Republican primary voters at the time, that he has international chops, that he has foreign policy slash national security chops. That's another thing going on here, a big thing going on here uh, with DeSantis and this trip. And we should underline that in a very big way. Whether or not that matters uh, when it comes to what the voters right now are looking for, that is a very big question mark. I want to talk about your interviews yesterday with both uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Amy Klobuchar touched on abortion. But this exchange in particular in Control Room, let's play the shorter Graham soundbite, was was interesting. And I think it points to what a number of leaders in the Republican Party are doing to try to describe their view of Democrats on abortion. Now, let's play it. Well, I think the Republican Party will be in good standing to oppose late-term abortion like most of the civilized world. Uh, just for the record, Roe went up to viability, but I just want to button this up. The no, man that no, the no, quit covering for these guys. No, 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 your media, you keep covering for these guys. They introduced legislation that allowed abortion on demand with taxpayer-funded uh, well, you paying for it, the taxpayer, up to the moment yeah. of birth. That was their position in Washington. That's the law they want to pass, and nobody in your business will talk about it. It's barbaric. It's not true, and there's people should watch your full interview with him, and you're not covering for anyone. But the point oh, about saying abortion on demand up until the term, and up until the point of delivery, I thought was striking, especially what we heard from Senator Tim Scott on that a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, what Republicans have been doing since Roe was revoked has been saying there's a very important question to ask, not just of us Republicans at it, when it comes to where, uh, at what point in a pregnancy abortion should uh, be, uh, be allowed at the beginning of the pregnancy, but the question for Democrats, which is how long through a pregnancy should abortion be allowed? It's a legitimate question. It is a question that I, and I know each of the three of you, mm -hmm. have asked uh, Democrats repeatedly, because this is a policy that has not had to be set for 50 years while Roe was in place. Mm -hmm. And so as these states are coming up with their individual new laws, the question is not just, for example, uh, Florida, you cannot have a, an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, but the uh, sort of more liberal states, how long is it okay to do that? Mm -hmm. it, it is a legitimate question. It is not legitimate to say we are not asking right. those questions because we are. I actually remember vividly you pressing Katie Hobbs on it. Yes. She was running for governor of Arizona uh, over and over for an answer and many others. But um, but, but yeah, yeah but the other thing I should say is that, yeah. it, it, what, that what that spoke to is how incredible, and I think you were getting to this in your question, Poppy, how really complicated this issue yes. is on the raw politics for Republicans. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the whole yep. reason Lindsey Graham proposed a national ban, even though he said he never would during the midterms, is because he understood how complicated it was politically for Republicans, and it still is. Dana Bash, thank you. Always a pleasure. The Dana Bash, the one and only. <laughs> Be sure to, to watch you guys. the one and only Dana Bash State of the Union every Sunday, 9 a.m. Eastern. New data shows regular phone calls are out and voice notes are you in. Except if you're me and I call everyone. Ow, Harry Enton is ow, here with your morning ow, number. Ow, <laughs> are you singing, Harry? Ow, People think it's like weird when I call them. They're like, why don't you just text me? Yeah, you don't call me. So, how do 
you like to reach out to your family, your friends, maybe your colleagues? Do you make a phone call, send a text, or are you part of the new growing trend of those who leave a voice note or a voice memo? Sounds something like this. Hey, Don, I just wanted to uh, let you know that you should send me some dog photos after this segment, because if I don't get one, I'm going to be really, really sad. <laughs> the voice that you hear there is our CNN senior data reporter, Harry Enten, who is here with this morning's number. Not about the number of dog photos you've gotten from Don, but what is the morning number? All right, so this morning. And he does send those, by yeah, the way. Where are the dogs? Where are they? Where are they? Uh, send a voice memo at least weekly. About one in five on average from data in the UK and the USA. And more than that, it's on the rise. Let's take a look here. So, okay, voice memo users rising up 114% since 2019 in the UK up 37% since 2022 on the dating app pin. So voice memos are becoming significantly more popular. Why are they becoming more popular, Harry? Okay, so how do people talk daily or more in the US? Text messaging is more popular than making a phone call. 68% on the text message, 59% on the phone call. But let's say you want support, right? You want that human touch. It turns out that people who got support in the last month via phone call, 51%, versus text messaging, just 46%. So I think these voice memos kind of create this middle Ooh. ground, right? It's the phone call's personal touch without the fear of interrupting somebody's day. And I think that's especially big with those under the age of 30, which is close to my age group, but not quite. Yeah. I like it because, yeah, it, it's like a text where you don't have to type it all out, but also like you're not on the phone to them, there's no obligation, you just get off and I you still go. call them. Yeah. All the time. Kayla and I agree on this. When someone calls, I'm like, what's wrong? What do you don't want? Call what do you call? Yeah, like, just, just text me. Saying hi, guys. Oh, no, no, no. Don't <laughs> ever do that to me. You'll freak me out. No, no, no. Or the text. people who FaceTime out of the blue. I'm like, Ugh. I'm not answering a FaceTime. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. like, this is yeah. suspicious. Yeah. All right, Harry and Ted, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. All right, and thank you for joining us this morning. CNN News Central starts right after this break. Bye, everyone. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.